Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 99 from a jail cell with our Jewish sounding conscience here <laughs> in 2020. I am one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Cove. And with us today is my uh, my cross my cross country best friend who I've never met, Joe Reed. <laughs> What's up, guys? Co-host of the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the podcast I wish I thought of, and also the managing <laughs> editor at primetimer.com. Joe, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thanks for having me. I had a vision also- that this was going to be a really, really excellent podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but are you I, sure I- it was God who did it, or was it just some guy throwing a sword in <laughs> <laughs> one of one of many di- many different ways the sword could have ended up in the field. Yeah. By yeah. the way, I like I also, this movie. <laughs> I also just want to say that Joe is also the guest on uh, one of my favorite blank check episodes, which is the blankies that they do every year, yes. where they get to talk about all of their favorite uh, movies of that year and they do their nominations, uh, which we rip off for our fifty-two and review each year. But also just. Um, it's just I really look forward to it, not just because it's a culmination of the year, but like you guys have such a great camaraderie. All of you guys, you obviously go far back. So it just it feels it's a really fun episode. Thanks. I, I in in David and Griffin, I have found two people who take uh, movie <laughs> awards 
on the same level of seriousness that I do, which is sure. which is somewhat ra- rare. Whenever David talks about how he like pulls up his spreadsheet, I'm like that's so eerily yeah. familiar to the like yeah. Microsoft Word document I've been <laughs> cultivating since basically I've had Microsoft Word. So it's it's that's truly amazing. kinship there for sure. Yeah, I love doing that episode. Yeah, so jealous that I'm not invited to that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel jealous too, but it's also, you know, we just had David on um, for the previous episode. Yeah, last he week. did the Limey with us. So last oh, nice. Week. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, it, it <laughs> whenever we're talking, and I'm sure I'll feel this way when we're doing this episode, but whenever talking, whenever we have Griffin or David on, I realize it just makes me feel insecure because they go so much deeper than I can. Like they, they just they fucking know stuff that the the scope of it's crazy. Yeah, it's a, it's a recipe for feeling bad about yourself. Just listening to their podcast and just like I, I couldn't go to that level. Anytime I even like talk to like Griffin about a movie, I'm just like you know off the top of your head things that it would take me like a day and a half to research. Yeah. Like it's incredible. <laughs> I just listened to I was just listening to his episode that he did with you guys on Muppets from Space and like that's the perfect example of that where it's just like yeah. you know so much about Muppets like I could never in a lifetime. <laughs> we had so much fun doing that. The, the thing yeah. that like does drive me totally nuts about Griffin is it's everything. Yes. It's not you know you know those nerds who just can go deep on one topic. No, this yep. guy and and I consider myself to be you know one of those, you know, mile wide inch deep kind of nerds right so. but he is a mile wide mile deep kind of yep nerd. <laughs> yep and the- which is why it's when you find like a subject that like oh okay like so on this subject we can you know bond on this thing and one of the things that i think is it thought was interesting about you having me on to talk about the messenger which is sort of related to one of the things that griffin and i can go deep on is his like encyclopedic knowledge of like old entertainment weekly issues back to like wherever it's just like looking like box office charts. And like, that's me with like entertainment weekly um, fall preview, fall movie preview issues where it's just like, I'll remember my, my co-host on this had Oscar buzz, Chris file. And I, every once in a while we'll quiz each other. on like, who was on like those top four boxes of the fall preview issue. And it's like, sometimes I just have this like picture of it so much in my head, but it's back then (laughs) this, like when I was sort of this like nascent, like Oscar nerd who didn't really know where to go with all of this enthusiasm. That was the main outlet that was like, and there were very few other ones where it was like entertainment weekly, which didn't even really start doing like Oscar predictions until like right around like 2000, 2002, that kind of like really? era. Whereas this point in 99, I remember getting my Oscar and I'm so not to like, I don't want to like get ahead of I no, know please, you asked, please, uh, please, everybody please, like where yeah. they were in 99, 99 I'm in college and yeah. I'm like grow? definitely already into the Oscar stuff, but the places I'm getting stuff are like E news, which is like, much more concerned with like celebrity shit and whatever. And like every once in a while, they'll throw you a morsel of Oscar buzz. Um, I remember reading articles in like time magazine where like every once Mm -hmm. in a while they would have like assessing the, whatever the landscape as we head into Oscar season, Rolling Stone used to do this every once in a while. And then for the purposes of the messenger, I'm going to bring up entertainment tonight. The only time I ever remember entertainment tonight ever mentioning Oscar buzz 
was I caught this episode and I wasn't like a regular entertainment tonight watcher, but I was whatever must've been flipping through the channels and found it. And they were like, who's going to be nominated for Oscar this year. And this was in like early fall. Right. So it was like long lead preview for them. And which is crazy to think of today when like long lead Oscar prognostication is like two years ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but they were like, it was the first time I heard anybody mention Boys Don't Cry. They were like Hillary Swank garnering Oscar buzz for Boys Don't Cry. Obviously, that turned out really well for her. Um, and The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc, like Mila Jovovich, is getting Oscar buzz. And nobody, I never heard anybody mention anything like that ever for the rest of the year or whatever. And I always feel like, was that a thing that I like made? Did I have my own weird vision from God that like Mila, Mila Jovovich is getting um, I'm going to, by the way, completely go back and forth between Jovovich and Jovovich, and Jovovich and yeah, throughout yeah. this podcast. Yeah. So, like, forgive me. You, all right, so a couple things. Yes. One, I was totally right. You are my brother from another mother. <laughs> we have the, the same upbringing. Uh, my, my, we don't talk about it that much on this podcast. It's true. But um, Dana Schwartz was on the first time. Dana was writing for Entertainment Weekly at the time. Sure. And we were, I was really nerding out about Entertainment Weekly because entertain, I, I think I went from about 19, I'd say 93, through when it went quarterly. So maybe like 18 months ago. Right. Without missing an issue. Yeah. Um, cover to yeah. cover. And I still get it, but I, you know, now life has gotten in the way. But uh, so Entertainment Weekly, for me, and it sounds like you and Griffin and a lot of other people actually did craft the way my mind works when I think about movies and pop culture. Like, for instance, Absolutely. I don't think I would have even been aware of Buffy if it weren't for um, Entertainment yeah. Weekly or that Buffy was considered more than just froth. It's uh, so funny would, that you mentioned Buffy, not to interrupt you. but well, they like, were so obsessed with it. A friend of mine just moved into his new apartment and he was putting up photos of it. And he, I saw that he had a framed EW cover of the special Buffy issue that they did where they like uh, ranked all of the episodes. This was in mm-hmm. like at the end of season three. So like they ranked the episodes from the first three or four seasons or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I had that this issue. This is the and cover I, like, I remember. That's the yeah, one. The That's the exact stuff. one. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I held on to that issue till like the cover had fallen off and I'm like taping it back <laughs> on because it was this weird like Bible for it. But it was that exact thing. It was like, oh, people take this show seriously. This show has like been blessed yeah. with legitimacy. And it goes beyond that. I mean, we did, you know, we did a whole Freaks and Geeks miniseries on this podcast. Yeah. Freaks and Geeks, another thing that if it weren't for Entertainment Weekly, I would have either never remembered it or just thought it was some Friday night show that just didn't really matter too much. I didn't have the internet. I wasn't right. that I wasn't that curious to go and find shit on my own. Right. So Entertainment Weekly led me by the nose to really good pop culture like i think people don't understand that this time warner publication actually right. was staffed by really smart interesting intellectual people right it's very easy to think of ew <laughs> as this like the most corporate of the corporate and whatever and but it's like back when i was that age back when i was late teens or whatever i wasn't like a fangoria kid i wasn't like yeah, me neither. deeply into like genre shit or whatever i was incredibly enthusiastic about movies and TV, but it was on a slightly more mainstream level. But like, yeah, EW went hard and it was, 
and really gave you like a really good breadth of yeah. entertainment knowledge if you were willing to like dive into it like I was and like it sounds like you were too. I also for me it should also be said too that their best of at the end of each year was like something I not just looked forward to, but would comb through and find things yeah, I might not have it. heard about. Like it, yep. I, it was a really big deal for me each year. And then to, to, so the best of, and this, you know, kind of leads to this Oscar obsession that I have, which was also in a lot of ways born out of entertainment weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, I think any entertainment weekly reader knows their Oscar issue, in my opinion, was boring as shit. Where they did yeah. the little, they did the little yes. uh, yeah. features yeah. on each one. But yes. the one that was awesome was the prediction issue. Yep. Where they went, where they actually predicted the five nominees, and then they had their dark horse. It was, or usually a sixth, and then a dark horse. It was a thrilling moment that I liked more than anything. Yeah, that was really good. They also used to do for a while there. Their Oscar issue would have some kind of anniversary component where they would yeah. be like the Oscars 25 years ago. I yeah. remember the one year they went deep in like the 1974 Oscars and how uh, it was like Pacino for Godfather 2 and Nicholson for Chinatown. And they all lost to uh, Art Carney for uh, Harry and Tonto. Harry and Tonto. I remember, and I remember that it was like, article. Right? <laughs> okay. And I was just like, this is fascinating. Art Carney. It was hopping for Lenny Bruce and yep. it was. And it was, uh, you said Pacino, and then it was like it was like Nicholson for like five easy pieces or something for like Chinatown some, for Chinatown, Chinatown. And, and then, then it was Hackman for the conversation maybe or something like it, it was, was. I remember really it being like was. Murderer's Row, and then yes. Art Carney, and it was like, <laughs> and but yeah, I was fascinated by that article, and and they would do that. Um, Kind of every year they would, you know, go along and and go back and like that stuff was fascinating. But you're right, it was the predictions that were like, those were very cool. And especially when they would do the predictions, when they would start doing the predictions in the fall preview, because then you're just like, you're picking stuff out of a big old bucket. And that's my favorite thing about Oscar prediction stuff is Mm. it's. It's cool to talk about it from like nominations through the actual Oscars. It's so much more fun to talk about it pre nominations because that's when like the bucket is at its most overflowing and it's, I don't know, it's super cool. And then, so So, then the the next thing I wanted to ask on this line of questioning is all right, so Phil reached out to you about what you wanted to do. And obviously, you know, you've, you've built a bit of a brand for yourself as the Oscar guy or at least the Oscar buzz guy, which is an even better brand. Yeah. And um, then he said you wanted to do the messenger and you explained why the messenger falls into this bucket. But um, this this is is, this is just not an Oscar movie, particularly in 99. Like it really it it does seem like you just had this one little flash that, that lodged into your brain. But that being said, it wasn't as if this was this was a great year for the five nominees. Now, they weren't bad performances, but there were at least three that are, well, one is completely meaningless, Meryl Streep in Music of the Heart. And Although, Jenny, I'll interrupt, Music of the Heart's a weirder movie than you remember in terms of just like... We, we already did. Oh, we've done it. It's okay. weird. All right. So like, you, you know, like I'm somewhat fascinated by everything about Music of the Heart, that it was originally supposed to star Madonna, that it's obviously, it's Wes Craven, uh, yeah. The true story aspect, yeah. who plays her kids, all that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, we haven't done any of the affair yet, but there, and we haven't done tumbleweeds yet. And then there's Hillary Swank and Annette Betting, and it ultimately became a two dog race. But right, um, there might have been an opening here 
This, it's not that crazy to think that, you know, Miljovich no. might have been able to sneak in. Well, and I remember at the time, I'm trying to think of like who were some of the other Golden Globe nominees that year. And I remember, I think that was the year that like Jodie Foster was sort of in contention for Anna and the King, which was also a similarly like kind of a That was an Oscar play, yeah. Yeah. That was an Oscar play. But it wasn't super like exciting. And then you had sort of even like Reese Witherspoon for election sort of peeking around the corner as – She was nominated for a Golden Globe in She was. And it was always like, well, that's too cool to ever really happen at the Oscars. That's never going to like really be a thing. But yeah, I think with a a lot of the 99 Oscars, obviously you guys – I mean the reason why you guys are doing this podcast is because 99 is such a cool year – and the odd thing about the Oscars is that sometimes happens is I sometimes imagine that it's just like there are so many options for really deserving and cool and artful and sort of cutting edge stuff that those votes kind of get spread around. And what gets decided upon are like the safer ones, which, you know, you can get like super like a lot of people get like super mad at that. And sometimes I'm just like. It's just the Oscars. You take the sweet with the sour. You know what I mean? Like where the yeah. Oscars wouldn't mean anything if they weren't at least half the time stuff where you're just like, come on, Oscars. Like, you know, <laughs> it's just like because ultimately it's just like it's you're you're somewhat disapproving dad asking for his approval. Right. And we're just like, come on, Oscars, just like smile on the ones that I love, like for once. And when they do, yeah. when it's like, oh, they nominated Tony Collette for the Sixth Sense. That's such a good nomination. I'm so glad that they like sort of saw that. And it's just like, OK, I'll take that when it's, you know the green mile and right. cider house yeah. rules, which I still actually really like the cider house rules, but I get where that's a really boring oh. and weird uh, nomination. So I have two quick things I want to ask. The first is, and I want to just rewind real quick to the EW stuff again, because you guys go very deep on EW. I also loved the magazine, but I think that you guys probably go deeper than I do. Yeah. So here's a, a question for you guys. Can you think of a cover, like a fall movie preview, like of a movie that was clearly like being, touted as an oscar player that just ended up being a complete not oscar player like a cover that you're like why is that getting the cover of entertainment weekly i think this is your lane joe i think 99 had it 99 is random hearts right (laughs) i was what i was teeing up random hearts was the entertainment weekly fall movie preview cover um (laughs) we covered that one for this had oscar buzz actually and that is one of the maybe five (laughs) top five episodes that I remember the least just because I'm like, what was that movie? Like <laughs> you, you do watch some movies before your your uh, your podcast? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. A terrible movie. We haven't done it, but we terrible. very nearly did it. So we watched it. It's yeah. so like, blah. It's so no. nothing. It's the epitome of like Harrison Ford doesn't care. And yes. no one cares. You're putting <laughs> like Kristen Scott Thomas, who's such an amazingly like captivating actress. You're putting her in a box in a bucket of just like this character you could not possibly care less about. The most exciting scene comes in a department store. Wow. Yeah. Yep. That's the cover. And, and that's by the, the way, one. that movie looks good. Yeah, right. The one, the, the one they're promising yeah. on the cover, where yeah. they're in a pool. They're never in a pool in the movie. My I'm God, if they were. No. I'd be like, up, letter grade higher for that. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I do, before we get into the messenger, because, you know, and I think yes. we're probably going to be talking Oscars throughout this podcast. Yeah. Uh, how many 99 movies have you guys done on your podcast, Jack? And how many do you think you could do? Oh, that's a really you, interesting question. You just did Flawless. We just did Flawless very recently. Uh, after uh, Joel Schumacher died, we wanted to do a Schumacher movie. And he's a very interesting one where, most of his movies are not 
Oscar buzzy. Just even yeah. though I always did think <laughs> like one of these days Schumacher's just going to hit the nail on the head and it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the one we would love to be able to do is Phantom of the Opera because that's that's yep. the perfect uh, calculus of the amount of like Oscar buzz that it had. It did end up getting like a couple nominations, which is wild and and strange because it's a terrible <laughs> terrible film um about a musical that i like indulge probably more than i should like i've seen phantom mm-hmm. of the opera on stage twice when i was a kid and then once as a fully grown adult who knew what he was doing and bought a ticket to phantom of the opera um but it's I, like I, it's, I, I have it's, publicly it is what it is. i have publicly stand for that honestly so, <laughs> that musical. speaking <laughs> about broadway in new york city right now is such a bummer because of like everything that's going on but like as i would always say to people before this whole thing happened if you have a chance phantom of the opera tickets are not that expensive buy a ticket and just go it's it's a it's a thing to experience just like mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I regret nothing um <laughs> Trying to think of other ninety nine movies. Yeah, I'm though. trying to think of other ninety nine whiffs at the Oscars. I mean, um, if you'll allow me to like take half please, a second go. and yeah, pull up course, my spreadsheet that we have, um, yeah, yeah. which is mostly oh, Chris is doing. Shit. Chris is like super organized about stuff like this, um, and well, we have this like gun. giant bucket of like movies that we could do in the future that we will you know just sort of choose from. And our rule is we don't pick. We can't pick anything that even had even a little Oscar, nom- like even like a minor Oscar nomination, right? So, oh, can I can I posit one that might actually be on the list yeah, for yeah. you guys? The story of us. That's Good absolutely one. on our in our bucket of things we could do. Although that is another movie I only I saw it not in theaters, but I think probably like right after it came out on on DVD or video or whatever I was watching things on back then. Um, I remember it being deeply boring. It's but bad. It's a bad. terrible movie. It's bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, well, one of the things I wanted to talk about in relation to Luc Besson is I went and I rewatched The Fifth Element before I watched The Messenger. And like, Fifth Element is a movie I always think I'm going to like. And I end up not really? liking it super and much. You never liked it? It's always been a disappointment to me. I like parts of it. I think it really picks up when Chris Tucker shows up. I mm-hmm. like Mila Jovovich in it, um, and I like the sort of mythology around it. I think Bruce Willis is a dud in the middle of that movie that I don't know if I ever fully get past. It just seems like he's like sleepwalking yeah. through that movie. He he absolutely is. I think the thing that that and we'll talk about this obviously at length as we get into the messenger as we get into Luke Besson. But Luke Besson is one of those guys who's been tagged with the style over substance, and yes, that's and that's a fair thing to tag him with. I yeah. think the fifth element has a really great look to it. I think it's got a great vibe to it. I think that that Bruce is boring in it, but like you know, Mila's really I don't. great. It, okay, he's he, whatever. Long, long story short, I think that <laughs> I do think that Luc Besson, from a production perspective, and we'll talk about this with the Messenger as well. Like his movies look fucking great. He's yes. got a great score. He's got a great cinematography. He's got great yes. production design. I mean, he got Jean-Paul Gaultier to do all the costumes for yep. the development. Like, yes. it's it's all very – the package is impressive. It's just sometimes hollow is unfortunately yeah. the problem. So I found the 99 movies that we've done. Yeah, Flawless most oh, cool. recently, we did an episode on Bringing Out the Dead, which was like – we're like, this is our one chance really to do a Scorsese movie because even when he does 
something that doesn't like hit, it'll get like a cinematography nomination or an art direction nomination yeah. or something. Um, Chris liked that one better than I did, but like there's definitely lots to dig into with that movie. It's a really interesting movie. Yep. Um, Random Hearts, like I mentioned, such a snooze. Uh, <laughs> oh, there was one other, uh, two others, Anywhere But Here, which is the, uh-huh. the Sarandon, uh-huh. Natalie Portman movie. She was, they're both nominated for Golden Globes, or at least Portman was. Portman and I remember, like, she came sure. close. Yes, yeah. Portman was definitely for sure nominated. We did that about, well, we did it a while ago now, but yeah. That was it. That's yeah. one of our more interesting podcasts. It's it's a, such a time capsule. It's I, I remember we spent a lot of that episode talking about Sarah McLaughlin because there was a Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> yeah. cut in that movie. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's such a Lilith Fair era movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's totally, totally. We spent a um, lot of time talking about my mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot in that movie about her and her cousin and this weirdly flirty relationship, yeah. too. Yes. I'm like, it's yes. so weird. Uh, and then Double Jeopardy, which is another movie similar to The Messenger, where everybody's like that had Oscar buzz. But I swear to God, and we found an I found an article um, <laughs> from back in that year where they were like Ashley Judd is such a standout in this, and it made so much mm-hmm. money, and it was such a financial success that people were like Ashley Judd's got to be a shoe in. And of course, like she very much wasn't. I don't think she got like any precursors at all. But that was a super fun one to talk about. I thought that was a movie. Yeah. Um, I think I I don't recall Can you guys also, liking it too much, oh, but I really liked it. I have a few that I, I want to remind you. To see yeah, we make. didn't like it so much. But can I just okay? You you go first, Kenny. Then I'll go. You go first. All right. I can't remember. I had one that I thought was a good one, but okay. Uh, Ed TV definitely had Oscar buzz. Absolutely, it did. That's absolutely one we could do uh, for sure. And <laughs> you, did you do Anna and the King? No, that's on our long list also. That's definitely a possibility. Thomas Crown. Oh, I would love to do Thomas Crown Affair. That would be a really fun one to do. Uh, Any given Sunday? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we could totally do that. I don't think that got any nominations. (laughs) How about Life? We just did an Oliver Stone. Literally this past week we had one on uh, um, Natural Born Killers. Oh. No, U-Turn. God, U-Turn's such a... Nightmare of a movie. Um, There's so many you can do. I, this is so oh exciting. yeah. Could yeah. you do Life? Um, the oh, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy Maybe. That's Lawrence. an interesting Maybe. one. I'm not sure, but yeah, that's. It's definitely would be an interesting movie to talk about. How about Happy Texas? <laughs> we were just. What got us talking about Happy Texas? There was some sort of. Sunday? I think it was. It might have been on somebody's IMDb game where. Um, and Chris was trying to give me clues to it and he was just like it was he's like it was a comedy <laughs> with like gay adjacent comedy. like uh, <laughs> themes and it was like a total bomb and I was just like oh happy Texas <laughs> total bomb Yeah, uh, I'm going to throw out a couple more Okay, Tea with Mussolini absolutely we would do that It's that one is hard to find I feel like that's one we have tried to see if it's on streaming and it's not available. We had to buy the DVD for We did. We bought the DVD. That's right. Um, That cast, though, is a a no-brainer for us. Like, that cast is good. It's a good movie. Is it? Okay. All right. I don't remember anything about it. I think I saw it probably back then, and I don't remember a ton about it. So a less good movie, Snow Falling on Cedars? 
Never saw it, but would love Might to have do gotten it. a nomination. That I think is, I think it's that it. one has like a score or cinematography. cinematography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yep. It does. Uh, Angel. I mean, there's so many this year. Angel's, Angel's Ashes. Also a nomination. Angel's Ashes is a score yeah. nominee, so we can't uh, right. do that. Although we're talking about maybe if we ever do a Patreon thing, that that will be what we'll do for Patreon is like movies that got like one nomination, but still sort of fell flat. I wanted well, to do Charlie Wilson's War so bad for that very reason. I'll give you we're one last one last okay. one that I think yeah, is okay. uh, is maybe the, is maybe the one I want to hear you guys do the most. Yeah. It definitely definitely falls in Instinct. <laughs> oh, is Instinct the Anthony Hopkins one? Cuba yeah. Gooding Jr., yeah. Right. Cuba Gooding Jr. Yes. We could totally do that. Yeah. You yeah. should do that one. That's a very that. very be, bad I'd movie. I'd be very very curious to hear your thoughts on Instinct. Uh, Hopkins is such a ham in general and I feel like that one is oh. probably just like serving it up to him on a platter in terms of uh, 100% because yeah, like, he's like he's Hannibal a Lecter psycho a, in that, right? A gorilla. What if Hannibal Lecter was raised by gorillas? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's what if he was the gorilla? That's the plot think, to that right? movie. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, so here's my here's my question to you, Joe, which actually piggybacks on, on what we were just doing. But what's the movie that you think got? I don't want to say yeah, the biggest Oscar snub of '99 because we've often talked about the five best picture nominees. I think it's safe to say are not even. Well, I mean, some might say Sixth Sense, Insider, both good movies. But yeah. Insider House Rules, uh, American Beauty, and Green Mile. American Beauty is problematic now, and it's in its own box. But right. that's not – those five movies, if nothing else, are not emblematic of the year that is 99. So I guess my question is, what was the movie that you think they overlooked the most or didn't get the love that it should have got but did get some nominations? I mean, the big dog in that yard is – Magnolia, probably. Although Magnolia is a movie I have fun wrestling with. I've never been 100% in the bag for that movie. There's always sure. something where I watch that movie. And it's so funny because I was doing research for uh, Messenger. And one of the things that I found was it ended up on the Siskel and Ebert Worst Movies of the Year special. Ebert did it with yep. Joel Siegel because uh, Siskel was uh, sick by that sick point. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Joel Siegel had actually picked Magnolia as one of his worst movies of the year, and Ebert sort of. I remember him on that argument they had. That's yep. the other. That is the other. That's the other uh, plank for a you know a, a movie nerd with a subscription, <laughs> yeah, and some free and, and yep. a TV guy where they can look up where they, where Siskel and Ebert is syndicated. I yeah. remember him saying that, and God bless Roger Ebert for defending <laughs> Magnolia to this idiot who shouldn't have been allowed on television. It's um, so funny, we, and his like his crazy complaints about, about movie, it. But. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's such a yeah. it's such a fascinating movie. It's such an interesting movie, um, and probably along those lines, although it didn't get anything, I'm pretty sure is Eyes Wide Shut, which is like you know deeply fascinating. And you guys Nicole, need to cover that. If it didn't, I mean, I don't yes, think it did get any nominations. I don't think it did either. Nominations? Oh well. Um, so which, there's so many things about that that it could have been nominated for. I remember at the time being excited that this was going to be Nicole Kidman's yeah. Oscar nomination. We're not getting She'd a nomination. Already, is insane. She had won the Golden Globe for To Die For, and I remember yep. that was – a lot of people thought she might get Oscar nominated for that, and that didn't happen. And then with Eyes Wide Shut, there was such publicity for it, and it seemed like such a good narrative. I'm a big thing about like Oscar narratives, mm-hmm. and – it just didn't 
come close to happening for like a billion different reasons. Like most of them being that American audiences had no idea what to do with that movie and with like the her the her and Cruz of it all mm-hmm. in that movie. But I mean, yeah, there's I mean, a I, lot in that movie that should be recognized. Oh my God. I mean, listen, I could talk about Eyes Wide Shut all day yeah. long, but the, the, the movie that jumps out, there are two movies. So David Sims last week brought up one performance in particular that was sort of the big snub, which was Jim Carrey for the man, for man on the moon. Uh-huh. Like that was sort yep. of, that was kind of the moment where it felt like he had the momentum. He was playing this. Uh, he's very, very good in that movie. And that movie overall, I think was kind of, it wasn't showy enough. It wasn't splashy enough. There was something about it that didn't connect with audiences. Although mm. I quite like that film, and I mean, it. it, it all that being I, said, I, I love it. It was just kind of a you know, it was a weird snub. The thing about Carrie at the time, though, was he won the Golden Globe two years in a row. He won for Truman Show in '98, which was the huge surprise because everybody was like, "It's going to be McKellen for Gods and Monsters." or Nolte for Affliction, and then Cruz knocks him down, or uh, Carrie knocks him down at the Globes, and then Roberto Benigni, like the the horse coming from the back of the pack, just sort of like <laughs> completely yeah. overtakes everybody, and that was yeah. its whole thing. Yeah. And then Carrie wins the next year in musical or comedy for Man on the Moon, and then by that point, I think people were like cynical enough. I remember the people I sort of like were reading and were talking about it were like, well, if Carrie couldn't get nominated for Truman Show, which was a drama, and... Peter Weir, and I know Milos Forman is obviously like a two-time Oscar-winning director, but like yeah. he had sort of yeah. gone a little bit off of Oscar's path by then. Um, and I remember people sort of like being cynical about Carrie's chances by that point because it was mm-hmm. like the second year in a row. I'll take that a step I think further because, yeah, sorry, yeah. because I that narrative I, I remember as I remember it the exact way you just described it. It got so dire yep. that when he was in Eternal Sunshine, which is one of the best movies ever made, yep. nobody even entertained the notion exactly. that yep. he would be nominated. And Winslet was. And it was nominated for Best Screenplay. Yep. And a lot of people considered what, what? it the best movie of that year. Yeah. Right. It won, it won for Exactly. Yep. A lot of yep. people considered it the best movie of that year. And looking back, a lot of people considered it the best movie of that decade. Yep. I yeah. do. So like I very well might crazy. as well. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to consider that this guy wasn't even wasn't even talked about. The 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 campaign was over before it started. It was there is Michael Bennett esque. Yeah. There's a there is a, a alternate reality where Jim Carrey gets the the awards and the reviews that he should have for Truman Show and, and Man on the Moon and has a completely different trajectory to his career yep, yep. where he becomes Robin Williams or, or even Tom Hanks on the outside. Like yeah. there's something there, but it never happens. And, you know, we now see what Jim Carrey is, which I mean, listen, he's coming, he's having a little bit of a comeback. People like him in Sonic, but all that being said, yeah, it is so true how quickly everyone just turned on the guy. The other movie I just want to bring up real quick um, on this Oscar 99 sort of thing is Tom to Mr. Ripley. Yeah, that's, that to me is that's the movie that, that is as time has gone along and I like I'll adjust my list because I can and it's my you know whatever who's going to stop me um, <laughs> Ripley has moved steadily up my list as the years have gone along and now it's absolutely my number one of that year it's nice. it's so every time I watch it, it I seem to think it gets better it's Jude Law deserved all of the attention that he got but it's still super weird that it all funneled just to one that one performance because everybody in that movie is so good. But yep. I was 
uh, Chris and I were talking about this one recently too, which was it came at the 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 fatigue point for like four people involved in that movie, where it was like English patient fatigue hit Mingella. Um, Matt Damon fatigue was hitting at that point. Damon was about yeah. to hit like his nightmare year of 2000 where it's like bagger vans, <laughs> pretty horses, um, whatever that animated movie he made that everybody hated. Um, oh yeah. Titan AE. Yeah. Titan AE. Right. Jeez. I think that was all 2000. It was like, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, even Kate Blanchett at this point was that like, yeah. um, the dip for her. And like, obviously everybody, I remember reading something where like somebody was like Gwyneth Paltrow backlash hit the second she took the stage to accept her Oscar. And I'm like, that's absolutely true. People like turned on her so quickly and like all of those people are at the top of their game in Ripley. It's amazing. (laughs) Gwyneth Paltrow has been underrated for almost all of her career after winning the Oscar. And she's so good in this movie. (laughs) She's the best. I don't get it. People are mean. Yep. Kate Blanc, you in, in general, Kate Blanchett was the runner-up in 98, right? Yep. Yes. In in general, the runner-up to a despised winner gets a huge bump. But yep. Kate Blanchett didn't get a bump. She got runoff. She got this weird Elizabethan or Elizabethan yep. runoff, which is like, we hate all Elizabethan shit now. Yep. So you're totally right. Um, yeah. You're totally right about, about Ripley. Now, I think Ripley... I think being John Malkovich was very clearly the sixth place. They got the director nomination for Spike Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. But I think Ripley might have been like six A. I do think they were. I think it was a lot closer than people remember of of how close that movie because Green Mile yep. came out of nowhere, nowhere, and Six yep. Sense came like yeah. kind of out of nowhere. Six Sense you know? was a surprise for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other three. Yeah, so- were basically yeah. locks by that point. But those two movies that I always remember, like they both had like this greenish hue in my head. Yeah. Um, one because I remember Cider House Rules being a surprise because I think that was one of those, the narrative on that one was like, boy, Harvey really strong armed another one in there where yeah. um, I think Michael Caine was getting buzzed that whole time. But the fact that it got picture and director nominations was. I think a surprise to a lot of people. Plus Tom that. Cruise wins. He wins the golden globe yes. yep. and he loses the Oscar to, to Kane. He had yep. the Cider house rules, uh, had the trajectory that crash would successfully ride later, which was out of nowhere. And again, this is the height of my Oscar watching. Yep. This movie went from insignificant also ran to wait, is it going to win? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Start, no, really, it started to become yeah. like, wait, yeah. if, if American Beauty doesn't win, it's going to be Cider House Rules. That was always the when people were making the predictions, American Beauty was so far ahead of everything. So, like, yes, everybody it knew was. it was going to win. But they were like, the ones that were like, if it doesn't, it was Cider House Rules, was sort of like mm-hmm. the, the runner up horse in that one, which a lot of people were like really dreading at the time because of, I think, the, the Harvey factor after Shakespeare in Love. That's when it, like more people knew about the sort of aggressive campaign tactics and mm-hmm. all this. And everybody got kind of, you know, uh, sort of sick of that. And There's also, I mean, Shakespeare in love is the previous year, right? Yeah. So like Harvey is the reigning quote unquote champ, right? Like yeah. he got the best picture the previous year. Right. So, but then, and forgive me if I'm wrong. I know we talked about this, Kenny on the, on the side of her episode, but if I'm not mistaken, he was sick or something. And like, he wasn't, the campaign of some sort. He wasn't doing the campaigning that he was usually doing, or I don't know. There was something that was off about it. And they were also half producing 
talented Mr. Ripley. So right. like He's talented Mr. Ripley is a is a Miramax Paramount co-production. Okay. So Miramax had international, I think. Long story short, they didn't own all of it. So they put all their chips on Cider House rules rather than putting any of them on, on Tonson Mr. Ripley. Right. And obviously I guess it sort of worked out in some way or another. But but it is interesting to see how the sort of the what that previous Oscars, which was shocking. I mean, I was shocked when, when Shakespeare and Love won Best Picture. I think most people were pretty shocked by that. I mean, it Can seemed I tell like you a my- foregone conclusion that it would be can I tell you my Shakespeare in Love wins the Oscar story? Two things about that. One of them is a friend of mine taped all the Oscar ceremonies back then and put them on DVDs and like made me copies and gave them to me. So I've been wa- I've been able to watch old Oscar ceremonies. And if you watch that ceremony over again, knowing that Shakespeare in Love wins, it makes a lot more sense because it dominated the early like craft categories with costume and art direction and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And I think Whoopi walking out at the very beginning of that Oscars dressed as Queen Elizabeth it's like, oh, Shakespeare in Love is really in the zeitgeist at this moment, even more so than Saving Private Ryan. So it makes mm. more sense. But my other story is mm. I'm a freshman in college that year. I am the only person I am friends with who's like, got to watch the Oscars tonight. So I'm watching him like in my dorm room by myself. I don't know what my roommate was doing at this point. Maybe I'm like making him watch with me. I can't remember. And it's of course <laughs> the Oscars. So it's like late. It's after midnight at this point when it gets to best picture time. Harrison Ford walks out. Um it starts to make the presentation and the fire alarm goes off in our dorm <laughs> building. Somebody had been making popcorn in the microwave and like opened the bag I too close to the fire alarm. So <laughs> no, I, I, as the like rule follower extraordinaire that I always was walked out. We waited forever outside until they figured out it was nothing. They let us back in. And by the time I had gotten back in Shakespeare and love had already won in this like upset of upsets wow. in best picture. I was so, oh, mad. that's amazing. How about this? I got a worse story. Okay. Oh, please. It has nothing to do with fire alarms. Okay. I, you know, I have all these children, so I tend to watch things. <laughs> Um, a little, a little delayed, including sure. the Oscar. Yeah. And my wife and I don't agree on a ton of pop culture, but one thing we're both like totally fucking in the bag for our award shows. Yeah. So we'll watch almost all the award shows on delay. One of the award shows we were watching on delay was the Oscars three years ago. Somebody, her friend, blew the no. moonlight La La Land moment. No oh, way! No. Oh, and we, and at that point, we were only like three minutes behind. We, 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 had, we had rushed Ugh. through the commercials. We were killing it. And not only that, she like fucking sent a, uh, an, an, a, uh, a screen a capture. She's like, what the fuck? Oh, so like wow. we knew it, and Laura's and Laura's like, oh my god, what happened? Like like because because remember at the time it was like this yeah. is not like just your normal spoiler. This is like the world. No, once in, once in a lifetime moment. I was at a previous job at that one, and we're in the office that night covering the Oscars as like a team thing, right? And I'm the one who's going supposed to write the best picture article when Beck's picture wins, and so I at some point with you know whatever. Once Chazelle wins Best Director, I'm like, all right, La La Land's winning this, winning this picture. I'm going to start Publish. writing this article yeah. early. I'm going to have this thing. All I know what the narrative's going to be. I know whatever. I'm going to be like good to go. And so I'm just like putting the final touches on this. And then everybody to my like peripheral right is starting to freak out. And then of course I like whatever. Like it's a much better story. It was yeah. obviously you know, um, but yeah. So speaking, um, speaking of narrative, though, you did make the point you're a big fan of or a, a big believer in, in Oscar narrative. Me too. That's the whole game. 
I we we do predictions on this podcast too, and last year was just an extremely busy year. I didn't see anything, but I, I predicted it all based on narrative, because you don't need to see the movies really. In fact, if you see the movies, you're at a you're in a worse position because your emotions get involved. That's why I do. That's why need, I do way worse at uh, Oscar pools than I should. Which because yeah, like you're rooting, I've seen everything, yeah. so now I yeah. feel like I've got like information, and it's just like no, it never works out that way. That's always. That's also why I never get that upset. Usually, not always. I always reserve the right to get upset if I want to. Um, I don't get that upset when people win like career Oscars, when like Julianne Moore wins for still Alice and everyone's like, that's not her best performance. I'm like, do you know how rare it is to win an Oscar for your best performance? It really (laughs) is like, it never happens. It's incredibly rare. Just like be thankful that Julianne Moore who deserves to have an Oscar on her mantle has one like that's, (laughs) and it's not for a terrible performance. It's for a good performance. Like let's be happy. That's a that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, I, I wish that I wasn't as passionate as I am about some uh, some performances and some people winning and not winning, but that's the, the better way to well, go into it. That I, passion also makes the engine run, so that's good too. Yeah. <laughs> so, in terms of the messenger, did you see this movie in '99? No, this was the first time I saw it. Was this week? Oh wow! Okay, yeah. that's exciting. that's why that's one of the reasons why I chose it was I was like, oh, this will be fun to get a good excuse to watch this movie, and also I had my weird little entertainment tonight story. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I'm going to give a very brief synopsis uh, for the people who have not seen this movie. But um, mystic, maiden, martyr, whatever you call her, it's difficult to dispute that Joan of Arc led a remarkable accomplished life for a peasant girl who never went to school and never saw her 20th birthday. It all began in 1429 when a teenage girl from a remote village stood before the world and announced she would defeat the world's greatest army and yeah, yeah. There's a lot of in this one. I didn't write it. I know. I know. I didn't write it, but it's it's something. It's special. Um, I like so it. the messenger opened on on November twelfth, nineteen ninety nine, uh, in fourth place with six point three million dollars against Pokemon, the first movie, Dogma, and Anywhere But Here. Oh god! Uh, it would it would go on to make. $67 million worldwide on a $60 million budget. It's got 30% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 58 from audiences. Um, I'm going to read two very quick uh, snippets of two reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert said, Luke Besson's The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc, labors under the misapprehension that Joan's life is a war story and takes place largely on battlefields. In fact, it takes place almost entirely within the consciousness of uh, 
consciences of everyone involved. The movie does at least concede that a good part of Joan's legend involves her trial for her heresy and her burning at the stake. Basana's cast Mila Jovovich as Joan. She was his wife at the time and they started, uh, that they started shooting. They have since split, although he says they would still be together if they could only have made movies 365 days a year. A statement that may prove more insight than intended. Jovovich, yeah. who, also, who also starred in Basson's The Fifth Element, is a healthy, cheerful, open-faced 24-year-old actress who seems much too robust and uncomplicated to play Joan. The movie is a mess, a gassy costume epic with nobody at the center. And then, Uncom- uncomplicated is such a loaded term in that context, <laughs> right? Oh, and boy. then the Guardian. I'll give a very. This is very brief. Uh, yes, she's a teenage girl, but was there any need to make one of history's most remarkable women quite so much of a pain in the neck? The Messenger is a crass and interminable movie that miraculously transforms one of the most remarkable women of the 15th century into an irritating brat. I will say that was one of the notes I made was just like, like she does seem like she would be a pain in the ass to have to like be around all the time. I'm not saying that like, you know, she didn't have her, you know, her points made and whatnot. Um, Yeah. I will say, I want to say one quick thing, which is that Kenny and I both, when you, when, when, you know, when we figured out that you were going to come on for this movie, Kenny and I were both like two hours and 45 minutes. Like this thing's going to be brutal. And I gotta say, it's a pretty fast moving two hours and forty five minutes. I was never particularly bored. Like it actually right. moves at a pretty quick clip. Right. It's interesting that Ebert sort of talks about it as, you know, unfortunately Bassan saw this as a war movie because like he does until he doesn't. Like there's a whole solid hour at the end of this totally. where it is about like um pretty intensely about Joan wrestling with like literally her conscience in the embodiment of Dustin Hoffman, <laughs> the weirdest slash maybe best thing about this movie. Um, but like it does, I think it does lend itself to that aspect of the story pretty heavily at the end. It is, he compared it to Braveheart. I know a few times and There's it does in that first half to, you know, two thirds of the movie does feel that way whatever I have complicated slash negative feelings about Braveheart. Um, But I liked that the action scenes were daylight action scenes. I think Mm -hmm. there's, there's, I love the Lord of the Rings movies, but like the Lord of the Rings really did usher in this era of like all, um, all big epic battle battle scenes happen at night. So you can like, whatever, like cover your, you know, mistakes and do things or whatever. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty ballsy to do all those action scenes outside and they do seem more visceral for it. Yeah. Um, And tactile. Like there's very mm, little CG in this movie. Like this movie looks like people beating the shit out of each other on a battle. Getting their heads blown off by cannonballs and whatnot. By cannonballs. I mean, I'll say this. It's, I weirdly, and I don't know how you guys feel. I don't really see it as a war movie. Like, I don't think there's that much battle footage in this movie. I don't think there's more than 15 minutes of battle footage in a two hour and 45 minute movie. It's so so intense that I can see you walking away from that with that being like the biggest thing that's sticking out in your mind. But yeah, I, I, I think you're right. So I think I know what's going on with, with Roger Ebert and this old guard, like film literate film critic circle. And, uh, Again, so I watched Joan of uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc, which is a 1928 uh, French silent film. Carl um, Theodore Dreyer, a Dutch director, directed it, and it's often considered like 
among it's on Sight and Sounds top ten list uh, for both right. critics and directors, and it's just considered one of the you know the the great films of all time, and like certainly the one of the great films of the silent era. That film is obviously incredible, and it's an experience. The film takes place entirely within the trial, mm. right? Mm. Yeah. Um, there, there is nothing else in that movie except for the trial, and the trial, and, and it uses the real minutes from the real trial 500 years oh, wow. prior, and it is so powerful. Um that it is hard to look at any other version of telling of this of the telling of the story and think that Joan of Arc had was about anything else other than a bunch of it explicitly says this uh, in a preamble a bunch of experienced lawyers and um you know kind of you know uh pompous clergymen putting this young girl away because they couldn't understand someone who could be so pious Right. And you could truly believe that God was speaking to her. And the movie, despite being about Joan of Arc, and you are definitely with her in the performance by, uh, I believe the actress's name is Maria Falconetti. Um, yep. It's literally incredible. Renee, Renee Maria Falconetti is, is truly incredible, all in, in close-up. But it is a male gaze performance. You are meant to be looking at this character from the male point of view and thinking about how these men are putting this young girl to death because they can't seem to understand her because they, they could, because she, she threatens their place in society as mm-hmm. both either clergymen or as warlords, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Now this is a French film and everybody in France understands this character in a way that Americans don't. So like, you know, there's, you can make a film in America about Abraham Lincoln and you don't have to tell anything other than like a snippet of his life and it becomes, you know, the best film of that year. Right. I actually mm-hmm. think the messenger for a two and a half hour movie fills in a lot of what you'd want to fill in about this story. Like there aren't a lot of 19 year old girls in history leading battles against anybody, let alone in a hundred year war against England. So that does matter. Like it, it does. It, I think it's, there's a lot of value in in filling in the first, you know, I mean, the trials took place over 18 months. So the first 17 and a half years of right. her life. Um, well, one of the I things about Joan of Arc is, is, the you know the trial for heresy and that as you mentioned like that's the focus of that movie but one of the things about Joan of Arc was that like she became not only a saint like she was a mm-hmm. roman catholic saint um but also like a essentially a folk hero in France because she inspired this devotion and she rallied the the forces and that was part of what turned the tide in the hundred years war and like so this movie seems to be very, at least partially, really interested in what that would have been like, what that kind of inspiration would have required. It's, when when you think about the sort of ecclesiastical stuff, Bassan seems pretty, if not outright skeptical, at least yeah. just sort of just like, uh, you know, this could have had a lot of explanations. Like, what is, she certainly seems to believe this is really true, but like the movie itself is... Um, often skeptical of it, which I, <laughs> it was so funny watching this movie from my own sort of like, you know, modern agnostic perspective or whatever. I'm watching this and I'm just like, all right, what would have been like the, you know, what's the explanation for this? Was she like mentally troubled? Was she, she just sort of like, you know, was she young and, and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then I'm watching it and I've been so trained by, um, like, 
fantasy fiction and sort of like medieval whatever where i'm just like i literally have the thought of just like well back then like these things happened and i'm like wait a second no like back then like people didn't actually like hear god it's not like back then like god talked to people a lot more it's just like no that's just sort of like you know back then there were witches and it's like no i guess not that that's not really true either Um, but that is but that is instructive though that does matter because back then People did believe, right? You know, kind of blindly that God existed, that there right. were saints, that there were messengers, uh, prophets, etc. And when presented with someone who seems to be presenting all the signs of these saints mm-hmm. and prophets, uh, they burned her at the stake. So- One of the things that I thought was most interesting was the part where the guy who's running the uh, the Inquisition into her. At some point, when the the guy from England, and you know he's from England because everybody from England in this movie has terrible teeth and is, you know, a slop. (laughs) Evil. Um, That was the other thing is trying to keep apart everybody in this movie because everybody's allowed to speak in whatever Whatever dialect they want to say. Um, So it's hard to tell who's on what side sometimes. And it's like, okay, the English, I'll have bad teeth. Um, And that is not like whatever. Like it's a stereotype, but also it's like literally explicitly in this movie. Um, but the guy who's running the Inquisition at some point just confides to this guy. He's just like, I'm kind of worried because what if we're wrong and she is telling the truth? And then we're <laughs> yeah. like, we're persecuting this actual servant of God. And he's trying to like hedge his bets and like trying to make the safe play. And like the politics of this movie are kind of interesting. And I kind of wish those might have been delved into a little bit more. At some point, they like fully drop the Faye Dunaway character who – I was kind of interested in because she's sort of for a while there, she's really into the idea of bringing Joan in and and supporting Mm -hmm. her because that will get them the support of the peasants. But then once Joan becomes too powerful and and wants Mm -hmm. to push them into battles that they don't want to go in, then she's like, well, we can, you know, put her on trial. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting part of the passion of Joan of Arc and the, in the, the real story per the, the minutes that they seem to get across here too is there was some some serious and open um, contrary feelings within the council within the judges like yeah. there were people in the moment said I believe her that's recorded in the record and yeah. that's interesting too I mean my favorite it's it's the weirdest thing but the thing that it reminded me of the most um, was this music video for Radiohead for Just. Do you guys know that video? I do I don't. know that video. Sure. I don't. It's the best video of all time. <laughs> it's fantastic. And basically, the video is there's a guy, and it's all in a it's all in subtitles, so there are no spoken words. But there's a guy laying on the street in the middle of the street. He's just laying on the street, and Radiohead is playing, you know, <laughs> fifteen stories above, so they have no actual effect on the story. Yeah. And a man walks up to him and says, can I help you? And he says, get away from me. He says, let me help you up. No, leave me alone. Why are you lying on the street? Leave me alone. Get away from me. So it's a lot of leave me alone, get away from me. The more people yeah. come over and they keep trying to get him to stand up or get him to move or get him to at least say what's going on. And he won't say it until finally there are like 30 people around him. And he says something to the effect of, I'll tell you why I'm laying on the street. But if I tell you, like, it'll change your life forever, right? If I tell you, blah, blah, blah. You cut back to Tom York, and then you go down to the street, and you see him still laying on the street, and you pan up, and all of those people are now laying on the street. 
So just this idea that uh-huh. something could be so powerful and so yeah. compelling to have yeah. people do something so inane and dangerous feels like religion to me, right? Feels like the true believer thing of religion. And I feel like that's what this, this Jonah Ark story is to some extent. This idea of is there a way for someone to, to present the story to you in such a way that despite all of your, you know, your logical brain, everything you think you know about science and you would believe her. And I think, I think that kind of happens with Joan of Arc to some extent where you just kind of start saying, God, she's pretty fucking compelling. Yeah. And I don't want to be wrong on this one. <laughs> and they start to tell yeah. that story with the other soldiers for a while in terms of like because they're so opposed to her and like vincent cassell is like such a sneering like fuck boy or whatever although god he's (laughs) never looked more attractive than he has in this movie i don't understand it um but like all these people are doing that i um, (laughs) i i i literally texted my friend i was just like vincent cassell in this movie is doing it um (laughs) but so but you see that where like they start to come around on her and survives the um the arrow shot to the chest, that very sort of like oh, cool so slash ostentatious yeah. shot where she falls backwards in the, in the iron yeah. cross or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then she survives that and they're all, you know, the, they're really believing in her and you see that um, sort of the way that she could inspire the masses like that, because the movie does kind of hopscotch over her growing up. And all of a sudden when she arrives at court, She's already like a rock star in in yeah. whatever like the the peasant among the peasantry of France, and so we don't really see like how that happens. It's just sort of this like you know urban legend that's that's rolling through the countryside. I also think that, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, guys. But so I think that Mila is quite good in in the first I don't I want to say like half hour forty five minutes of her performance. Um, because, and this is going to sound more damning than it should, but I'll explain. She doesn't have a ton of dialogue up top. Right. And then she has more dialogue as we get deeper into the film. And then I guess my, the, the, what I'm basically saying is I think the bookends of this performance, how it starts and how it ends with her it, talking with Dustin Hoffman and her conscience, I think she actually really excels at that stuff. What I don't think she's as good at is when she's got to give a Braveheart speech yeah. or she's got to like, run around and she's whenever she has to yell she's not believable well and and the the dialogue is the weak point of this movie for sure like the there's a lot of just like real clunkers and the the cadence of the actual like you know speeches and words and whatever all sounds really anachronistic and like not in even like an intentional way where it's like Luc Besson post-mortem or post-modern post-mortem post-modern Joan of Arc or whatever. Um, It just sort of feels like dumb sometimes, you know what I mean? And so like, she has like kind of a hard time delivering that stuff credibly. I think I would agree with that, that like she's best at the bookends. I mean, obviously like Joan of Arc's like, that's of of the roles to play. Like that's a really tall order. Like Kenny mentioning, you know, the, it's only one of the like most revered movies of like cinephiles, yeah. or whatever. And she's yeah. got like, and also like Gene Seberg's played this this role and like whatever. And yeah, we were just talking about about Mila's performance, and there's I, I wanted to just kind of um, I wanted to kind of pinpoint on something because I do think that 
she embodies physically like her physical performance she's a beautiful woman but i also just mean i actually think that she's emoting quite well like if this was a silent movie i actually think she might have come off a lot better in a weird way than with the clunky dialogue you were talking about luke Besson's clunky dialogue i think that's her strong suit in fifth element too because in fifth element she's you know she's got her own weird little language and she's sort of there's a lot of communication barriers with her but she has such a strong look and i know that's sort of like a little bit of like a loaded thing especially with her career in terms of just like being valued for her looks more than than her abilities but like she has such a strong presence that it really does she's able to really hold the camera and to hold your attention through a lot of this stuff her story as a as an actress is really kind of fascinating, fascinating. reading up on her we're like she's born in russia she comes to the united states with her parents when she's like five um i read like her father was part of like the biggest health insurance scam fraud and like yeah. for whatever he goes away to prison Mother pulls her out of school in seventh grade to go into modeling full time, which like yep. a choice. Um, she's in <laughs> <laughs> Return to Blue Lagoon at age fifteen, which is like such a like you know the weird uh, iconography the thing for, yeah. of that. Yeah. She's fifteen years old. She does a nude scene. Um, the Razzies give her a nomination for worst new star because the Razzies suck. Um, that's yeah. how I feel. That's why I don't want to do a <laughs> like, Razzie yeah. episode. <laughs> the Razzies annoy me so much. They get like they're so mean. Like, that's mean. Like what to a fifteen-year-old? Like yeah. worst new star. Shut up. Um, seventeen years old. She's in Dazed and Confused, a great movie. She's almost entirely cut out of that movie, though. Doesn't find out until like really late in the game. Um, but she, said, element- she has such a look. They made a point to put her on all the posters. Right, she was in all the marketing. She has that one scene where she's like strumming the guitar and singing. She's like very captivating in that, but she's like cut out of most of her scenes from that movie. But she like paints the the kiss the kiss makeup on a statue. I think that yes, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She's not a famous person, so it really says a lot that the uh, the company behind that objectified her in that way. Yes. Right. Yeah. They didn't use yep. her as an actor. It's almost as if they paid her just to put this beautiful girl on their uh, poster, and that's kind of dirty in its own way, and probably was a little dehumanizing for her. So, well, and that's like it's so much of her career is typified in that, and the fact that like she yeah. married Bassan when she was like twenty two, and he was like thirty nine or whatever, like significantly older. Not that young. Um. Yeah, I think I think yeah. you're right. I think the age yeah. difference was even more so than that. Um, was, yeah, and then she marries the director of the Resident Evil, the movie. Resident Evil movies, who mm-hmm. I think she's still married to, she maybe is. or she like, is still to yeah, yeah. Um, my Good favorite Miljovovic Mil- performance, and this will have nothing to do with this movie, so we don't have to spend too much time on it. Um, she's in a movie called A Perfect Getaway, which I don't know if you guys have ever seen, with Timothy Olyphant and Steve Zahn yeah. and Keely Sanchez. It's a David Toy movie, I believe, is how we pronounce his name. Um, it's like, uh, Island vacation. You don't know who's the bad guy and it's two couples and there's sort of like, um, like mind games going on. And it's low key fantastic. If you ever catch it on like cable or whatever, like highly recommended stick with it. And she's really, really good in that. Um, but that one was like 2009 or something like that. But yeah, this, this era of her career is very, like the fact that she also got a Razzie nomination for The Messenger. And it always feels just like, man, we're 
the kinds of things we expected from her and then and I say we as like the culture, whatever. Like I think the three of us are pretty okay on this regard. Um, but like, and then sort of like smacked her down for are gross in a in, in a way. And I do think she like she's not perfect also, in this movie, but like she has her moments. I fully agree with you, and I think that this is one of those situations where, and this feels like a good opportunity because I, I feel like we need to give a little bit of context for this film, just a little mm-hmm. bit in the sense of so. This movie is supposed to be made by Catherine Bigelow. Right. She's, she was she was attached to direct a movie called uh, The Company of Angels. That's what it was. That was the name of it. Right. Jay Cox had written a script for it. She was in pre-production. She worked uh, with Besson's assistants. I'm assuming French filmmaker, whatever the case might be. She, right. for whatever reason, he's involved in the project. Contractually involved in the project. He then finds out that she has no intention of casting. Mila Jovovich in the lead role. In fact, she wanted to cast Sinead O'Connor. That was who Which she had. Which would have been cool. Would have like. <laughs> been cool. I don't know what yeah. this movie is, but it sounds cool. Yeah. So she wants to she wants to cast Sinead O'Connor, and she also wanted Sean Connery to play the Dustin Hoffman role. Right. I, I, I'm in whatever. This sounds Absolutely. Yeah. Basson gets wind of that, pulls out of the movie, and with it, all of the funding basically falls away from Catherine Bigelow's movie. Right. He pulls it all away. He creates his own project, which I guess was either loosely based on this script or the whatever the, the Company of Angels was. She sues him for, for breach of contract, for stealing her research. It's settled out of court. He starts his movie. He casts his wife. The right. rest is history. Um, I, I only want to lay that out because, to me, it's like, if you're Mila Jovovich... And this role is already this just the, the iconography and the weight and the, the importance of this role is on your shoulders. On top of that, your yeah. husband's directing it. It's coming off of his biggest success. He's basically blown up another project. So you play this role. Right. And it's just like, how do you process any of this shit? Like, how could you give a half? And on top of all of it kind of gives you a shitty script at times. So you're yeah. just like, yeah, right. Like, there's no way for her really to succeed in this situation. And I think she did the best she could under the circumstances. Yeah, it's <laughs> going back to the Bigelow, the the possible Bigelow version of this, and Connery playing yeah. um, the conscience. <laughs> conscience. <laughs> well, it's so funny because like there's all those things where like you get those stories about like how Connery was almost um, Morpheus, Morpheus in the Matrix, yeah. but he didn't understand yeah. the script and he didn't think it was any good. <laughs> and there was another. I remember when he like was Lord in, of the Rings. He was supposed to be Gandalf, right? And that was another one where he was just like, "Eh, it doesn't sound like a winner." And then, but then he like <laughs> is in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because he thinks like that's his project. Yeah. But I was yeah. just like, man, if Sean Connery had a hard time understanding Morpheus in the Matrix, I can't imagine what he would have thought. <laughs> this, looking at yeah. it, just like I am the embodiment of Joan of Arc's conscience, <laughs> like showing up to her in her yeah. little prison cell. Like, but I will say, Hoffman, pretty great. He, it's. You're so captivated by like what the fuck is going on? Why is he talking like he's just like Kramer versus Kramer? And this, you know what I mean? Kramer stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's he's just making no effort. Hero. Yeah. I I really uh, I the funny thing I really 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 liked this movie um, until he showed up. Yeah. Really? Uh, like, really, really was enjoying this movie. Uh, and I'll talk about Malkovich in a second. Um, and then I thought yeah. that that was yeah. such a departure from what they were doing and such a hackneyed 
lazy way for her yep. to say what is going on inside of her head. Yeah. Um, that I was super pulled out of it and disappointed in the movie at that point because it was unnecessary. Um, it's that's all the stuff you could have cut almost all of it out. You cut a you cut a half hour out of the movie. Right. It's at a manageable length, and I'll still get what um, what I want out of it. Now, I'm going to do reverse order. One thing that they missed that the passion had that's incredibly important. I don't know why they didn't include this. They certainly had the real estate. Was right after Joan of Arc was burned at the stake, there was a civilian uprising, and the uh, basically all of the all the villagers or the civilians who who were there to watch it and they were all in tears and it was really like a saint being murdered uh someone basically said you burned a saint you killed the saint Mm -hmm. which led to a civilian uprising which led to it being put down by the by the guards and more murder and more devastation there and that to me is very reminiscent of what's happening today right that is on some like the cops killed george floyd people say Look at what you did, and then more people are getting beaten and hurt right. and gassed and et cetera by uh, by the same group of you know the same kind of larger group of people. So there there's some you know so, so there's an evergreen quality to that that they they missed on, and I'm not really mm-hmm. sure why. Um, the second thing, the with regard to the the Malkovich thing, I don't know how I feel about that performance, and I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. Like on on some <clears> level, <throat> like I like the character quite a bit. It's not your typical it's not your typical royal character mm-hmm. in these movies. Most mm-hmm. royal most characters in that position. Now granted this is based on real life, so you kind of got to do what you you do with the with the uh the text. But most of them are are, are putting her down from the beginning. It However, felt a little cartoony to me. I Malkovich. think he felt like he was in a funnier movie than he was in. Well, it's such a Malkovichy performance where you can always sort of count on him to zag when the movie zigs, where it's like he's yeah. he's not a, an actor who finds the tone of the movie and blends in. Like, right. and a lot yeah. of times it's like really good in that way. Under the line of fire, he's that way. Um, Burn after reading, he's that way. And I think he's really funny in something like that. Um, he's supposed to be playing like a 28, 29 year old character, which I think is really interesting. And you can see it in his performance where he's trying to sort of play this like immaturity and brattiness or whatever. And the haircut certainly helps. Um, (laughs) But yeah, he's playing, he's the silliest role in this movie for sure. And the movie definitely intends for that to be the case where it's just like, there's a whole scene of him like in a bath and whatever. And he's obviously being sort of infantilized by his mother-in-law. She's kind of like leading him around and this whole kind of thing. And I guess the idea is that Joan being able to sort of like pick him out in the crowd, not knowing that he's the King and like sort of bestowing this, I am going to, give you the crown of France. I'm going to win this battle in Orlan. So like you can then be crowned King of France and that her faith in him supposedly mm-hmm. like makes him worthy to be King. But the movie doesn't really fully follow through on that. And because it drops his character before mm-hmm. the last like act of the movie, I'm not quite sure what that all like was moving well, it's, towards. It's, it's interesting. Cause I feel like, Luc Besson, all of his movies, I mean, the ones I've seen anyway, and I've seen a fair amount of them, all exist in this weird space of 
broadness. Like his yeah. comedy, whenever there's comedic beats in his movies, they are fucking loud. Like yes. they're just it's Chris Tucker in, in Fifth Element. It's mm. like it's and, and I yeah. think that's kind of what Malkovich is in this movie, which is that he sees this as an opportunity to to alleviate any sort of weightiness that exists in the movie with Malkovich. Um, and it seems like Malkovich, Malkovich is tapping into that as well, but it's a very strange performance. And I kept thinking, and maybe this is unfair, but it kept feeling it kept feeling like a Will Ferrell performance to me. <laughs> like I kept I kept thinking like it it could have been Will Ferrell if this movie was shot today. Just like sort of infantile and yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah I can see that tone, Joe, and kind of going off what you said, Phil. Is it is interesting if this movie was more somber and took yeah. its subjects more seriously, I think his performance would have worked a lot better. Right? I think is I, I, I do think you more would, of a contrast kind of a thing. Yeah, you know, more yeah. comic relief and a little more of a release valve and that kind of thing. Um But this is playing in this to your point, this weird Luke Basson space, which mm-hmm. It's hard to know what's going to fit into that. Like Chris Tucker and the Fifth Element fits perfectly into that. Right. And Mila Jovovich fits perfectly into that. But it's hard to know like this like understated, almost sarcastic. Like I I, I don't know. Like and on some levels, the Malkovich (laughs) performance really did work for me. Like I believed it more than I believe a lot of King performances. Right. I believe that there are. I believe that there is a certain level of respect that the Dauphin, in this case, always gets, right. no matter who he is, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think everyone's always plotting against mm-hmm. them, um, but I don't know. It I reminded me a little bit of uh, Jason Schwartzman in Marie Antoinette, where it's that same kind of thing. It was yes, just like, yes, oh, yes. you're like, you're in that case, it's also it's the French Dauphin or whatever. And it's just like, oh, but like, you're a child in many yeah. ways it's just like you have like no sense of like you know being out in the world and like yeah there's there's something about like depictions of french royalty in that way where it's and it's probably just a lot of you know i i mean i guess you can't give luke Besson an american sensibility but maybe it's like he is still a child of you know yeah. uh the greater sort of hollywood influenced movie system mm-hmm. or whatever and it's funny you bring up mary antoinette because that's that's i mean obviously they're both about uh about french history but I have similar, I mean, I like Mary Antoinette more than this movie, but similarly, I find myself conflicted about how I feel about it. Like it's, it's just, it's trying to do a lot of things, some more successful than others from a filmmaker that has a very specific vision and a very specific way of seeing the world and trying to do a postmodern take on French history in its own weird way. And and neither of them are a hundred percent successful. I would argue that Mary Antoinette is more successful than this film, but still, like, it's just <laughs> Luc Besson. It's just interesting because, like, the film that I think is his best film, I think The Professional is a great movie. It's problematic in a whole bunch of ways, but I do. Yep. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not in any way suggesting that that you know that the relationship between Leon and uh, and oh my god, why, uh, Matilda are right. is okay because it's not. That being said, it's his cleanest movie. It's a movie. It's from a story yeah. perspective. It's a straight fucking line. It's a clean story. It's great. It's got a great ending. It's got a great hero character. You've got that insane uh, Gary Oldman performance, which just speaks to that yeah. kind of like 
bizarro genre, uh, uh, Luc Besson world, and it works perfectly. It's modulated perfectly for that movie. And I don't know that he's ever hit it again. Like, it just feels like he's always searching for that mixture, and the chemicals just never, never play right for him ever since then, personally. Like, Valerian is insane. Did you like Valerian? I do kind of like Valerian. Um, <laughs> David liked it a lot too. David, never loved David loves Valerian and I love David for loving Valerian. I do I did find it more uh entertaining than not. I enjoyed, but also I'm like sure. I'm notoriously uh lenient on the Dane DeHaan issues. So like I get why like some people just like can't stand him and like whatever. I kind of enjoy that. I was gonna say I can't <laughs> believe you would uh I can't believe you what would is, like the family the this DeHaan? way though. What the is fam. the, yes, of course, what the, is the Dane DeHaan issue? Because yeah, can I you feel explain like, Dane DeHaan? I feel like that is that is a that is a, that that happens in circles that I'm not a part of, and I never really <laughs> understood it. But I we, hear it. I, I think it's so. A couple of weeks ago on our podcast, Chris and I were talking about The Walk, the, the Zemeckis movie. Sure, sure. Yeah. With Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I said one of the things, because Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's one of these sort of lightning rod performers too, where it's like yeah. a lot of people love him, a lot of people hate him. And I do think there's a thing with these like incredibly boyish looking leading men where mm-hmm. there's a lot of just resistance of just like – this little fucking twerp. Like what? Or, like why is why should we be watching a movie about him? Why is he like this like romantic twerp. lead or whatever? And I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt has tried to work against that in a lot of ways, and in a lot of ways, like try so hard that it's just like I'm going to do this voice and I'm going to do this, you know, like really I'm like put on I'm going to be in this movie where my and, face yeah. turns into Bruce Willis's face. Yeah, and. <laughs> I think Dane DeHaan obviously like hasn't like gone to those extremes, but like Dane DeHaan in the Spider-Man movie is just like, oh, okay, like you're going to work against this idea that like you look like too soft of a boy to be a credible villain. So you've got to like go all the way fucking out. And I think it's just, I think it, I do think it stems from that. I don't know. I'm sure people have like very good reasons for like hating performances of his, but like, I think that's such a, nobody talks about that. Maybe you and Chris do, but like the, (laughs) the, the, the small boy leading man thing. Yeah. And which I, you know, I, I, I I hesitate to say this, but like, I think that's always been my problem with Toby, Toby McGuire. Um, he does project that energy for sure. Yeah, big time. But and, and 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 he also does the thing you're talking about, which is I'm going to go even harder. Like I think one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen is the movie Brothers. With oh, we did that. We did that one. I like Brothers. Yeah, I think it. I think it's a very bad, terrible movie. And <laughs> and part of it is 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 like that it. that Toby looks like the Toby looks like the deflated version of Jake Gyllenhaal and yet he's yeah, alphaing yeah. him all movie. Yeah. And I, I think really Gyllenhaal's good in that movie. I think yeah, Toby's yeah. doing that thing that I'm sort of talking about. Toby tries so hard to convincingly give you dangerous or menacing yeah, yeah. that like his eyes are going to bug out of his head at <laughs> certain points. And I'm just like, yeah. you're yeah. trying so hard, my man. And like, meanwhile, Jake Gyllenhaal just like works out for a couple months and all of a sudden looks like credibly like, yeah. you know, yeah. A man yeah. well, and Hall is special. I, mean, I, 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 yeah. Why don't people understand what we have in this guy? Like we know. we have everything in this know. guy. But <laughs> I mean, the, the other guy, but but the but the the little leading man <laughs> who's killing it is Tom Holland. Oh um, yes, connected yeah, to both these guys. 
but Tom, he's not trying Tom, too hard. He's playing into. He's, he's taking he's, roles that allow him to be yeah. the boy fighter, and it's just like that. So works for him. Yeah, it's. I, yeah. I think Tom Holland in Spider Man is brilliant, incredible. I I do know I do know people like that who mm-hmm. the boy fighter is the exact right way to look at it. Who almost through through sheer goodness you want yeah. to follow them. And yep. sheer like like goodness and sweetness and rightness, but he's not he's not put in your face. I love fucking Tom Holland. I don't love having sex yeah, with great. him. He's great. But I love Tom he's Holland. He's great. I, I will say just to just to get back to Valerian real quick here. Uh, Valerian's got bigger issues than just whether or not you like or don't like Dane Dane. No, I think Dane that's Dane true. Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I would I would say that that. Um, I went into Valerian because I am a Fifth Element fan, so I went into it hoping that this was going to be a return to form to some degree. Um, but the two leads, uh, you know, Cara Delevingne, who who I don't dislike, but like can't really hang a movie on her. They both look like brother and sister, which weirded me out the whole time <laughs> yeah, as well. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. so that was kind of weird. Uh, and Rihanna's scene is something to behold it really is like there's a lot of weird shit going on in that movie is it it, Ethan Hawke who's in that one who's playing correct correct yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's more than anything you know Luc Besson is somehow trips into success Lucy giant worldwide hit yeah. where where Scarlett Johansson turns into a computer <laughs> turns into the internet yep 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 exactly yep. Scarlett Johansson turns into the internet at the end um starts like gangbusters and it's again classic Luke Besson who and I think we need to say this just because it, it should be said there is a action style that he birthed like there is a style of yeah. of action the way that it's shot the way that he then passed it on to minions of transporter directors and 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 the like of yeah. of a a relatively inexpensive energized really well shot really cool cost efficient film action filmmaking yeah and he deserves to you know to have credit for that um and he's obviously made his fortune doing that but then every now and then he'll make a lucy and then try and quadruple down on a valerian yeah. and you're just like i don't even know what you're doing man 99 is an interesting year for the like the Basson effect because obviously 99 is Run Lola Run, which I for years thought was a Luke Basson movie yeah. because it seems to just it it, bar, it you know takes yeah. its lead from so much of that sort of you know feminine totally. kind of stuff. You know, absolutely, it's, it's interesting because Luke Basson almost has this Sergio Leone quality in that he took mm-hmm. a. You know, Americans have so few art forms that are really ours, right? But the <laughs> yeah. Western is ours, mm-hmm. and the high-octane action film is ours. Yeah. And Luc Besson took an American art form and mm-hmm. francicized it. Um, and what came out was this other thing that – in its own way, like I agree with you, Phil. Like I think Leon, I think Leon and or the professional in its own way is like a really beautiful film that you're not going to get from an American director. The Fifth Element. I mean, I couldn't conceive of, a, of an American coming up with that. I couldn't conceive yep. of a, of an American putting those elements together. So I think that that in that way, like I love that. And I also, you know, John Woo would, is is also kind of in this mm-hmm. in this category where he's taken elements of an American art form and i guess in his case hong kongified it 
Um, and I think that's really cool too, uh, to see other places. I mean, directors from other places kind of riffing on what we've done here. Cause it's so yeah. often the other way around. The one Malkovich thing I wanted to go back to like really briefly too, yeah, is yeah, this yeah. was such a good year for him with obviously being John, Malkovich. Being John Malkovich being this year. And that, and when we talk about like the Oscars, one of my most mystifying was like, how did he miss that supporting actor nomination for a film that like Oscar voters clearly really liked nominated Catherine Keener nominated uh, Spike Jones and doesn't like, give him like his names on the movie for Pete's sake him <laughs> and uh, Christopher Plummer in the insider were the two that year that I was just like, what what's going on? What are we well, doing? How does this mess? Plummer was discussed a lot. For a nomination, I thought Malkovich was too, actually, but maybe I I'm don't mistaken. Remember Malkovich being not discussed at all, which is like, now, Joe, you you know better than me. I can't think of it. Can you remember anyone being nominated for playing themselves or a version of themselves? Oh God, um, not huh. off the top of my head. No, that's so crazy. That's funny. Um, yeah, or, I mean, know. maybe maybe there is the the Oscar voter that's like, really, are we nominating for John Malkovich? For right? John How much are, like, a lot of people like that? Now today they you would. You can't have. look at that movie and be like, oh no, that's just like John Malkovich playing like you know sitting around his house. It's like he, it's a character. He's like giving you a legitimate character. He's like. I mean, I don't know how – I don't care how you know wacky you think John Malkovich actually is. You're probably not thinking that that's how he behaves. Plus he plays just, a like, good what? portion of the movie with John Cusack inside him. He does such a good <laughs> Cusack impersonation. Cusack of, like, inside John Malkovich. Yeah. I, I mean look, yeah. I, I think that, that, that's, that was our – both Phil and my – that was our number one movie of the year coming into this podcast. Mm, it's a good and one. It's, it's a probably movie. like – you know, there are a few movies from this year, but – more than almost anything, that's yeah. the that is the movie that made me think like this is what I want to do, right? I remember so. the first time I saw that trailer in a theater. I was in a theater. I was that was back when you could see a trailer for the first time at an actual movie theater without yeah. ever seeing yeah. it like online or whatever. And ju- like just at the moment where they get off at the half floor and Octavia Spencer playing the elevator uh, operator, mm-hmm. um, crowbars open With the, the door. Crowbar. And it's just like, even before they get to the stuff about the portal to the brain and John Malkovich playing himself, at that point, I'm fully sold. And I'm fully just like, what is happening here? I'm so in. It was, oh my God, it was instantaneous. So it's like, yeah, it's it's a perfect movie. I'm so crazy about that film. But I do remember, and again, I was younger. I was, you know, 17. I do remember almost feeling like John Malkovich wasn't in the movie. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a weird thing to even say. And you wouldn't say this today in 2020. People, I think, understand enough to know that that is not John Malkovich. He would have been nominated. It would have been, you know, considered like the, the most groundbreaking performance of all time. But there is this weird thing where I almost still feel like it was a cameo. Yeah, uh, it's hard to explain. So, um, well, it, because yeah. I think we're I think it's that he was. Playing himself in a way that feels so uh, such a wink that it does yeah. almost feel like a cut scene from The Player or something like that, or like Pret-a-Porter. <laughs> Pret-a-Porter, also a movie we did on our podcast, which was so much fun uh, to talk about. Um, but I just got to rewatch that movie. I think that so I remember weird. hating it, but I want to watch it there's, again. There's definitely stuff to hate in it. You know who's excellent in Pret-a-Porter is Kim Basinger. Genuinely, I believe it. Fantastic in that movie. Yeah. Really, really good. 
Um, so I want to just, because uh, we were talking about Luc Besson and, and sort of the swings that he takes. And, and I, I think that this is an interesting time to talk about some of the, I don't know what the right way to say this, but historical inaccuracies that exist in this film. Yeah. It's clear that, that, that it was not important to him necessarily to be 100% accurate to what happened. He just wanted to, and again, from the stuff that I've read, that this was really about trying to get inside Joan's head and to show the contradictions and the various things that were going on inside her head as to why she might have done things or didn't do things. The biggest deviation is what happens to her sister. Uh, at the top of this movie, we have a horrific sequence where yeah. a bunch of, uh, of English soldiers stab her sister with a sword and then rape her body, essentially. And she witnesses this from inside a, a closet, essentially. She's hiding as a child. I, I mean, it, it is a utterly horrific sequence. Um, and I, I jaw get, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, jaw dropping. Yeah. And I, and you know, obviously there's a bunch of people that, 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 uh, there's actually been a fair amount of, uh, literature breaking down why this movie is the way this movie is. Uh, but one of them talks about, you know, this, this idea of, um, her sanity, her, why she's seeing these visions, whether or not she had some sort of a, psychotic break when she was younger and what might have perhaps triggered that again these are all speculations no one will ever really know but he wanted to clearly give some sort of a moment yeah uh to to sort of uh that made her who she is i guess or whatever um there are feminist undercurrents you know witnessing this rape and a crusade and this fight against male domination the abuse of women all of that stuff maybe but i'm not convinced that like it was so jaw dropping and so horrific yeah. that it derailed me to the point where I was kind of like, what am I watching for a good five or 10 minutes after that? You need the movie to make that scene absolutely necessary. You need the movie to then Correct. live up to the necessity of showing that scene. And I think you're right. It's just like, I don't know. I don't think it is there. I think her motivations historically are, are, you know, muddled, we don't really know. There's a lot to the, these accounts that we don't know for sure. But, like, just the fact that, like, the thrust of this movie is her as a, you know, whatever, a 19-year-old going into into battle to restore the crown to the French king. So it's like, you're not really, like, making a, you know, making a stab into the patriarchy by, like, yeah. you know... Yeah putting, you know, the king on his throne or whatever. So it just feels like um, like an Oren Ishii, like, origin story, right? Where it's just like, that's her, that's her galvanizing moment. And yet the movie had already given her this vision from God and, you know, the sword in the field and all that. So it did, you could, I would not necessarily disagree with anybody who was like, that's, you don't need it. It's too much. It's gratuitous. Because ultimately, she never really avenges her sister. No. And it, at like no point. she's going into battle against the English, but like that's never really, even like on a psychological level, you never really get the sense that like this is a thing that's plaguing Joan. The only she thinks about her visions of Christ and whatever and, and mm-hmm. her, you know, mm-hmm. all this stuff. So it feels extra in a way that I don't. Like. I agree. I, I agree. I think the purpose, and not to defend it, because it, it, I agree with everything you're saying, but mm-hmm. I think the purpose is more the line he says right before he kills her, which is, 
something to the effect of, oh, look, a woman with a sword. Right. So it is, I think it does, the intention is to say, this is what happens to women with swords. Um, uh, which That's interesting. And so I think that there's something there. And the other thing that I do think like that it doesn't, it doesn't follow on the promise of this. I think I agree with you, Joe. I think Braveheart is is not the greatest movie, but the brutality of the world back then mm. um, comes across in Braveheart in a way it doesn't come across in this movie outside of this one scene. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think that I I think the reason for that has to do with Besson's style, right? Like his style is so modern that I feel like it creates this weird sort of fissure between these two things like when i think of it, it's it's cool to look at but it's it doesn't my it brain can't process it, those two well things. this this moment i think comes across as an isolated incident and it's further presented that way by the two other guys mm-hmm. there almost looking at each other like yo what the fuck is this guy doing this isn't what we do <laughs> but that yeah. is what they do they rape and pillage like they're rape, right. they're rapists and pillagers so um, I, and, and I think that there is some value in setting up the world as so patriarchal that women can be accosted in their own homes and raped and murdered and to set up just how n- impossible it is for Joan to ascend to the, the, the heights she did. But I don't yeah. think they made that connection. I agree. Trying to make yeah. a movie within this sort of like medieval setting, though, you're always it's almost impossible to make a story about like overcoming patriarchal brutality because you really can't ever make the case that one side is better at that than the, it is more virtuous than the other in that. Like, obviously like you, you start unraveling that sweater pretty quickly when it's just like, well, it's, you know, the French are no better, right? There's, you can't be, you know, you know, the Hundred Years' War had, you know, atrocities on both sides and whatever, whatever. Um, God, I'm a both sides person about the Hundred Years' War. Kill me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, so you almost you have to make it this like really personal story where it's, and I think the movie kind of almost like starts interrogating itself in that last stretch with the Dustin Hoffman mm-hmm. character where he's, you know, what was all that fighting for? Did you kill people? Did you, you know, do you want to be killing people? Was that, was that your purpose? What is your purpose? What is, how are you serving God and all this stuff? And the movie ultimately ends up with more questions than answers, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing when it comes to this story, because ultimately she's dying burned at the stake. So it's not like you're, it's not like it's ending triumphantly anyway. Um, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I agree with everything you just said, Joe. And, and, and I also just like part of what I'm wrestling with, and I've been wrestling with it the past couple of days, thinking about this. And as I was sitting down here and I even mentioned it up top about how, like, I'm hoping you guys can shed some light on how I feel about this movie, because it is trying to do a lot of things and yeah. some of it, it does really successfully. It's a mixed bag. It's it, it kind of feels like they never really delineated and crystallized what they were trying to say about her. And perhaps to your point, that's the way they wanted it, which is we're going to present a bunch of things to you and do with it what you want. But that's a somewhat 
you know, unsatisfying experience. But again, we're having this conversation about this movie because it's wrestling with a lot of really interesting ideas yeah. and it doesn't, it doesn't successfully land a lot of them, but I respect the attempt and it does make me like the movie more. The thing with Joan of Arc to me is if there weren't historical records of her, I wouldn't mm-hmm. believe she existed. Right. It's right. so hard to believe this thing yeah. actually happened. Right, totally. So, Joe, you said something earlier that kind of speaks to this, which is they yada, yada, yada past the part when she goes from basically a child to already a leader of men. Right. And that's kind of an important part, too, to me, right? Um, how, like, it's a simple story. How do you get people who are programmed to treat you like disposable waste right to follow you right how does that thing happen um and then once you've done that what threat do you pose to the already entrenched um, right. systems and that you know that's a story that has been told over and over and over and over and over again and today like it makes a lot more sense there there's there are systems and you don't necessarily have to you know come from a place of being a you know deity on earth but back then the fact that she was able to convince one person let alone a whole right. army let alone basically a whole country country is shocking to me and yeah. thrilling yeah. and and amazing there's just so much built into the story where just telling the story in a competent way yeah gets a lot of points for me right yeah but can i, I ask you a question I, kenny sorry no, Just go ahead. A very quick, a quick yeah. question for both of you. Do you think that the film successfully conveys that? The idea that she was able to get everyone behind her. Like, that might be the, the biggest ding against the film, is that when Mila is rallying the troops, I don't buy that they would follow this woman into well, battle. I don't necessarily care about her brave heart moment. Because it's already done okay. at that point. They're there. They're okay. there on the battle lines, and she's leading okay. them. Like that's just a fact, right? So if she's not giving a great freedom moment. That's that's fine. Um, does it successfully explain to me why she got them to go with her in the first place? No, not really. And the answer is like she said, "I'm a messenger from God," and everyone believed her. Like that's it's just <laughs> that simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I that was sort of what I was what I was starting to say. Also, was I think the movie has to try and deal with Joan's um, sort of, I don't want to say cult leader, like, but like whatever, like the, the cult of Joan, right? Where she's a battlefield leader, but also she's a girl who God spoke to. And I think in that moment where, as Kenny, you say, like the yada yada over the middle part of her life, that's when her being the girl who God spoke to gives her a following among the countryside. And then we get to, what we get to see is her bravery and her sort of uh, fearlessness getting her a following among the, the soldiers. Yeah. And I guess the latter is supposed to give us a sense of why the former was possible. But I don't know. It's already because she's already so such a followed figure by the time she steps into the King's court, I'm just like, okay, well like hard parts over kind of right. We're like, (laughs) she's already, she's already got, got that following. And I think the movie doesn't 
do a super great job of blending that kind of, you know, the girl who God talks to with the, you know, the soldier aspect of Mm -hmm. her. I also, I want to talk real quick. I mean, we basically covered everything uh, in terms of what happens in the movie, but um, so she, she has this, she's, she's burned at the stake at the end of the film as, as everybody knows. Um, And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty horrific sequence. Uh, I mean, you, you, you really get a sense of uh, what perhaps it looked like, and then the movie's just over. Um, and, and, and I wonder whether or not that, listen, the movie's two hours and 45 minutes. I'm not suggesting the movie could have needed to be longer. Lord knows to Kenny's point, they definitely could have trimmed all, if not a good chunk of Dustin Hoffman's sequences. But, um, I did kind of wish that I got to see some semblance of what France felt like after her death. You wanted a Robert um, Bruce moment. A little, yes, sure. Yes. But you understand what I mean? Like a, a feeling of, I mean, we get it. We get a, a, a slight sort of epilogue that says like, yeah, she was canonized, you know, 500 years later or something like that. But, but I just, it, there's a part of me that, and I don't know how to say this delicately, but the, the, there's this element of the way that her death is shot. It, it almost glorifies it a little bit that it's kind of like this shocking, moment that is supposed to i don't know kind of feel maybe slightly cool in the way that it's shot i think and then it i agree with that yeah do you know what i'm saying and I then do. it just kind of cuts to black because it's like movie's fucking over man she yeah. put she was burned at the stake you're like well but can you give me a semblance of what happened over the 500 years before she was canonized oh, oh but you're forgetting the uh end cards in the impossible to read old english font <laughs> oh. at the at the beginning of the movie, I had to go back and play it again twice because, I, first of all, it's it impossible so to read this like small but very intricate old English font, and then yeah. it like scrolls up in a way so quickly. I'm like, wait a second, I'm still learning about yeah. Henry the Sixth and Charles the Seventh. It, it point, goes like, away like midstream. It, it like, does. It's so out. frustrating. I mean, I, guys, I've seen Star Wars. I know the way this is supposed to work. <laughs> I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for the words to go away. Hold yes. on. Come on, guys. Um, yeah, yeah no, I agree. I, I agree with all that, particularly the part about it was supposed to be like a, a cool death. It was a pre- pretty cool death, you know? Um, yeah. I just, she is it, one of those scary. historical figures where her life is incredibly interesting, but also it's the effect that she had on the French people because like she is credited with turning the tide in, oh, by the way, a hundred years long war. (laughs) Like that's pretty big. And it would have been cool to at least like see that like sort of filter in through through the people and to watch that tide at least begin to turn. And also, I don't know if you got this, Phil, but like uh (laughs) – she was killed by the English, right? Like yeah. she was, yeah. but also the French, like it's very hard to explain. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. like she was kind of killed by both sides. Like they kind of agreed on one thing. We got to get this girl out of here. Very um, brave heart. They had the Burgundy faction, which again, because everybody is doing as they damn please with their accents, it's really hard to tell yeah. <laughs> who's the Burgundies and who are the French and who are the English. And it's just like, but yeah, there was some combination of, and also the fact that the French monarchy, such as it was at the time, was also like cool with her getting put to death because it yeah. like served their interests. So like it, there was a lot of moving parts there that were not super easy to decipher at that point yeah they were not they were not clearly relayed and and i would also say because part of it too is 
you got Dustin mixed into all of this, right? Yep. So you've got her conscience mixed into all this. So your 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 grasp on what is real and what is not is also not helping. Mm-hmm. I'll say there one of the things that I did find interesting, as horrific as it was, was the various things that they were doing to her appearance to try to make it seem okay to murder her, basically. They were like, oh, let's dress her like a man. If we dress her like a man, then mm-hmm. people will be fine with us burning her at the stake. Right. Or these quizzes that they were trying to do in order to find excuses to be able to to do this thing. It, it, I mean, it's it it's, was the opposite. It was the opposite. It was it was they were looking for no no for real. They were looking for excuses yeah. not to kill her. Right? They were looking for excuses. They didn't want her to dress as a man. They wanted to dress wanted her to dress as a woman. She wouldn't. Right? Okay. They were playing these tricks to try. They 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 sent her a letter from Charles. A, a fake letter right. from Charles the from the Dauphine, basically telling her that uh, she'll be absolved, but it wasn't real, and they got her to sign essentially that she was being led by Satan and not God in order to save her life. They they really didn't want to kill her. Yeah, but they, that wasn't clear in the movie. No, it wasn't. It was very okay. it was very okay. unclear. Okay. But um, but yeah, the I think the the reality of it is even like weirder and sadder. Um. That she she really did seem to convince most people that she should not be killed in the in, in over the course of the trial. Like I get that like she was captured and they essentially were planning to put her to death, but like she won them over. Like with, with kind of the and that's why the parts in the in the battles like don't bother me so much because it was all born from this like. Uh, I, I actually don't make any decisions. I actually am not making decisions. God is talking through me. God is making the decisions. God is telling me to lead the troops. God is telling me to go up this ladder. And uh, I have full faith in in, in his mm-hmm. will as you know, misguided as it may have been. And the the resoluteness of that is, to me, it, it's kind of inspiring. Um, no, I, I, I think that, I mean, my takeaway from all of this ultimately is um, there's a good movie somewhere in here. Uh, it, it, it didn't necessarily come out that way, but um, it, it's, it stayed with me in ways that I'm surprised by. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I kind of expected a two, two hour and 45 minute slog right. history lesson. Um, that was, that was a lot more, uh, a lot more interesting than I expected it to be. Um, yeah. A slightly better movie might have been a lot more boring. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So at the very least, there's like, there's a lot to pay attention to. It's one of those movies where like the expectations are big. You're taking a big bite of like a big story. I think the same with like, you know, Mila, where it's just like, she's taking this iconic character played by, you know, the these great screen performances. I am of course, talking about Jane Wheedland and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but other things. <laughs> um, obviously. obviously. <laughs> um, but I like that. I like ambition is, is cool in that way. It's, it's, it will, it won't, you know, make me give it a full pass, but like yeah. it's, I, it's makes it interesting. And I think, you know, uh, yeah, I expected this movie to be very boring in a very exhausting way. Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot wrapped up in the title, "The Messenger," the story of Joan. The of story Arc. of Joan of Arc. Like this yeah. is a, that's a that's an onerous title, right? Yeah, you take that, 
I expected a lot of talking to God. I expected a lot more shots in fields. I expected a lot more, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of, kind of magic realism. I expected a lot more like bullshitty stuff that didn't yeah. really say anything, but just kind of conveyed this idea that there was this like, um, you know, divine quality to the whole thing that would have would have meant nothing. And it was a lot yeah. more terrestrial than I expected. Um, which I, I really appreciated while still having that Luc Besson light touch that, again, to your point, Joe, might have made it a, a worse movie overall, but definitely didn't feel like the, the the slog I expected. And as someone who really hates slogs, ultimately, <laughs> I think that's yeah. I, I, it makes for a better movie. Like, as I said on the podcast, yeah. like the, the, the worst sin by far to me is boring. Like, I can't. Yeah, I can't with a boring yep. movie anymore. I agree. So, I did kind um, so of like some of that bullshitty stuff where like with oh, the, I just, in terms of just like the way he filmed it in terms of the, um, there's a lot of these like really big wide shots of like her out on like the hill or whatever. And I'm just like, it all just like, it looks really good. And it's not even like, not even necessarily cool, but just sort of like, it's giving me a lot to take in. And I kind of like that. And even stuff I, of like yeah. the stone thrown in the middle sure. of the, the woods and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. all the weird, like Ken Russell-y yeah. kind of stuff. I was just like, it's a lot. All of the stuff, her lying on, she lies on the ground a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's I a, it's a mess it in a lot of ways, but like, it's giving me a lot to pay attention to. That stuff that didn't bother me. I agree. Like uh, the yeah. first, I think it was only really like five minutes of the movie, but that, that sound of music, Heidi vibe. That, yeah. yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Crisis vibe that they were putting forth. Yes, yes. Her life might have been otherwise Mm -hmm. was uh, was super interesting to me. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I I, I wonder you guys are going to write this one. I'm, I, you know, it's interesting. Basson's had the same director of photography basically his entire career, uh, who I'm pretty sure uses one lens, which is just a really <laughs> wide angle lens. <laughs> right. Um, and and I'm, I'm fine with it. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, how, and it feels like the other guy who does that is also French, which is Jean-Pierre Genet. Yeah. It feels like they both shoot things in this concaved kind of beautiful wide shots. Um, it's so much like when you do close-ups, everything gets like fish-eyed. Like yeah. it all looks really interesting and arresting to look at. Like those visions that she has, to your point, Kenny, of like, I remember the, seeing the trailer for this movie. I liked Luke Besson. I liked his two previous, three previous films. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm game because those visions and all this shit looks cool. Like whatever he's doing with this looks cool. And I stick by that. I still think he made a cool looking movie, even if it's, a little muddled in its themes and what it's trying to say. um, So Joe, we do ratings on this. I'm sure you've heard uh, perhaps on previous episodes. We, we, we do a rating. If we saw it in 99, I think I'm the only one here that saw it in 99. I think I didn't know you saw this. Oh, I saw this in the theater. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I saw this in 99. Um, I would say that, (laughs) In 99, I left the theater similarly, but also differently. Similarly in the sense that I felt a little indifferent about the movie. I can't say that the film like left a tremendous impression on me. Right. I was 19, and I was expecting something, quite frankly, a little more visceral. Uh, I don't yeah. know that I knew it was two hours and 45 minutes. So like, I left the theater with a friend of mine thinking, like, okay. like it yeah. didn't, I'd probably say I'd give it a 60 back in 99. Like, didn't hate it. Just didn't really do much for me. Didn't really care. Watched it the other day. 
went through a whole emotional roller coaster of emotions watching this movie. Like, I just, I really found myself just being like, I'm engaged, but I don't know why. Right. I'm, and then I'm disengaged, and I don't really know why. Like, yeah. it just, it was a very confusing experience. I, I left it, I gave it a 68. Okay, like, I felt like it certainly is better than when I saw it in 99, but I can't really, and that's, like I said, hoping you guys could help me. I'm now at a 70. I feel like this movie has gotten to a place where I'm like, okay, I can't really, really ride for this movie. Like, I wouldn't say to anybody, like, you have to watch The Messenger. But if someone was going to watch this movie or was a completist of Basant's filmography, I would say, yeah, you should watch this film. It's more interesting than you think is kind of where I come out on it. But yeah. So what what did you think, Joe? Um, I I mean – in grading, I don't have – I think you guys in grading all of the 99 movies, you have to sort of like put it in yeah, a yeah. spectrum of all that other stuff. I don't really have to reckon with whatever my grades would be for all the other 99 <laughs> movies. So I'm a little bit more able to you know, slide it around. I think going into talking about it on this episode, I was at about a 52 in that like there's things I like, there's things I didn't, you know – little very slightly more like than dislike i think talking about it has nudged me up a little bit but i think i'm maybe at like a 58 where (laughs) i can't quite go there's still so you know too much that's holding me back but like there's you know little i i love a movie that gives me a lot of little things that i like and this movie does give me a lot of like little moments you know fade down away dressed like a bene gesserit from dune (laughs) like (laughs) Toby Jones shows up for half a second and I'm like, Hey, it's Toby Jones. Um, (laughs) And you know, I, I, I root for Mila Jovovich in this movie in a way that like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm into it slightly more often than not. So that's probably where I end up. Um, I don't know why, like, I thought I really liked this movie. Uh, and then I looked back at my rating and I gave it a 62, which isn't that good for me. Um, and I don't <laughs> really know why, because I do think I like, like to your point, Joey, I do have to reckon with where this lands in the list uh, of the year. But I think the movies that I put in the 60s, 60 is a little more damning for me than for, for others, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and I think ultimately, you know, it's that last 45 minutes that really left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, sure. Really made me want the movie to end. But I have to give it a little higher because I really do like it. Like, I like it. And um, I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give it the same exact rate as Phil. I'm going to give it a 70. <laughs> nice. I, 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 you know, it's the second worst thing you could do on this podcast. The worst is to keep your exact grade, but the first, <laughs> the, 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 the second, it's true. It's true. To agree with me is, grade is, we're going to go 70 and I'll see where that, that lies. But before we move on to next week, Joe, yes. uh, I have to ask you, what do you think is going to happen with this year's Oscars? Yes. Oh my yes. God. I mean, I, it's it sounds like such a cop out to say like who knows, but like it's the truest I've ever meant it when I say who knows, just because we have no idea what the field is going to be like the like in just in terms of like I think what's going to be very telling is obviously 
the blockbusters are their own thing, where they're going to try and hold out hope, and are they going to open them in foreign markets and not the United States, and what are they going to do, and yada, yada. That's going to be a question that is going to keep getting wrestled with, and they'll figure that out. What's going to be interesting is there's a whole subsection of movies where you could open them on VOD mm-hmm. and probably be fine. Like you're, these aren't the movies that you were expecting to make a half a billion dollars on anyway. So like your spotlights or whatever, you can still put those on VOD or on a streaming platform and mm-hmm. be fine. And that class of movies is the bulk of your Oscar nominations usually. So if those movies start to open, I know we're having like we're technically having the Toronto Film Festival and technically having these fall festivals, although they're going to be very limited and yada, yada, yada. Um, once we start to see if those movies start to open in the fall, like they, you know, close to maybe when they normally would, the season's extended. But even if like by November, December, some of these movies start opening and people start getting to see them. The Oscars might not be as different as we think they might, just because they're not so dependent on blockbusters. Usually there are a a few, you know what I mean? You're not, you know, Tenet's not going to be the Inception or the Dunkirk of this year like other Nolan movies have been. But you're still going to have that middle class of movies that very, very possibly could still open and could still play. I know they just moved uh, the French Dispatch out mm-hmm. off of the schedule entirely, oh, schedule. which doesn't say yeah. it's not going to open within the window, but like, yeah, um, I think they moved respect to January, right? The Aretha Franklin yes, movie, they did. yeah, yeah, right. And I, right. And I think January is going to be kind of that new sweet spot now. And yeah. I mean, it's January, or, February, I think, I think that yeah. when in theory, maybe theaters could open, but I would also say, too, um, to your point, I don't. Because Kenny and I had this discussion, like, when the pandemic first started, or around then, we were sort of like, do they just punt the Oscars entirely, or do you just sort of not do an Oscars, or do you do one, but you do it later, or whatever, and and obviously they're aiming for April. I think we're going to have some sort of something in April. I think that, yeah. And, and, and I do feel like, to your, to your point, Joe, so many of these movies are watched on screeners anyway. Whether we like to think about that or not, right. most Academy members are watching them as screeners. Right. So on some level, to your point, if the budget can withhold a VOD release and you can make your money back, mm-hmm. why, why wouldn't you just like I, – and that's what I'm assuming they're grappling with right now right. is you know, smaller budget movies can go VOD and be okay. I mean right. the French Dispatch I think – that's probably a pretty pricey movie, so I, I, I imagine that maybe they're a little bit more hesitant about that. But your yeah. first cows and your stuff like that, to a certain degree, right. I think that stuff's just going straight to be ugly. Right, and like, and that's ultimately, I think, fine. And it's, I think, the big question is going to be whether the studios are going to allow the Oscars to take place without their like big ticket items and essentially hand the season over to Netflix, which like Netflix is sitting pretty in terms of like all their, you know, all their big releases are going to get released just as normal. Their Fincher movie is going to open just when it was always, maybe they're going to push it back now. Cause that's when voting will There's be Sorkin movie. right there. Sorkin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, and which is Hollywood okay with being like, you know, we'll, we'll let Netflix have the asterisk here and we'll move on to the next one. And you know, so what are, what are, you know, when is it? It's um, we're recording this on July twenty fourth. 
So we want to hold this, hold you to this. What's going to win, <laughs> Joe? God. <laughs> my my shot in the dark when I was on um, Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast, which I, I show up there at the beginning of the season and we all take our stabs at it. And I'm usually more wrong than right. But I did say that Fincher's... <laughs> uh, Joanna Robinson picked Knives Out actually last year. That's and was why like, I said really? Joanna came on this podcast uh, <laughs> a lot, a lot closer, and said I have to stick to it. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice. I actually yeah. said very cynically last year. I said The Irishman, so I came closer than I normally ever did last year. Yeah. Um, I said Fincher's Mankiewicz movie is mm-hmm. going to be nice. a big one because it's. It's Fincher, who the Oscars have now decided that they like after years of God. Speaking of Fincher in '99 and Oscar movies, like mm-hmm. every performance in Fight Club probably should have been nominated. Um, <laughs> but because he's making a movie about Hollywood, we know that you know the Oscars yeah. are into that. Oldman is the lead gives me a little bit of a pause, just because like even though they gave him an Oscar, like yeah. he's still not the most likable guy in Hollywood. So like he's a little two Oscars for frankly. yeah, well yeah, totally that too. So I don't know, I'm I'm not super confident on that, but that's the one I made at the beginning of the year, and I am going to sort of stick with it. I will say. Um, this one got moved maybe out of the season and they could still move it back. But that, uh, Will Smith movie where he plays Richard Williams, um, mm-hmm. seems King like Richard, exactly right? the kind of thing, uh, Venus and Serena's father. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's called King Richard. King Richard. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Um, that seems like the kind of thing that could be like, oh, that's your Will Smith Oscar movie. Like at long last kind of yeah. thing. biopic and whatnot. But, um, God, at putting me on the record for an Oscar prediction this year is <laughs> is uh, it's that's my passion of Joan of Arc. <laughs> what? A, all right, so I guess I, I guess the the only card. Right, so I've seen Mank a lot. I've seen Trial of the Chicago Seven a lot. Yeah, um, which is Sorkin's movie. God, uh, people the, are going to get so angry at Sorkin though, as they always do, and I'm always going to eat it up with a spoon, just like I always do. So <laughs> that's fine. But, um, the one that I, I weirdly feel like was. For the the week it came out, everyone said the Five Bloods is going to win the Oscar, and now everyone says it's not even really going to be a player, except Delroy. I think Delroy still has a really good chance. I think Delroy is really going to be. Uh, the, I think the critics are going to really be behind him, and mm-hmm. um, I mean that's your you know your career nomination that like he's been so good in so many things. Yeah. I did say when uh, Five Bloods opened that like oh is this our Oscar front runner in this year of, you know, we don't know what the hell is going to open. And that's one that's got a really good narrative. It's Spike who has just like made it back into the fold. And now he's making a movie that really feels incredibly urgent. Not that black Klansman didn't of course, but like, but like it really feels like Spike's right in the center of the moment there. And I do feel like this is a long Oscar season. Things come, you know, Mm -hmm. the, Oscar buzz fades and, and resurges, and I wouldn't count him out. I wouldn't count that movie out quite yet. The, the question that I'm wondering about um, is, and it's, it ties into what you were saying about, does do these studios take the L and just say, like, listen, it's going to be Netflix's year. They've got all these movies. Um, yeah. It's right in people's homes. Or do they, if they come to the realization that a theatrical window is, is maybe not possible, Right. Do do these studios start to say fuck it? Like I'm, we're going to make this happen digitally, and we're going to put all of our money on on a specific movie. If it's an A24, if it's even a, um, you know, 
uh, a neon movie, whatever the case might be. Right. Is there a studio that says, fuck it, I this might be our chance again. They like should. Neon, which by the way, obviously did an incredible job with, with Parasite last year and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, just in terms of releasing that film, which is yeah. arguably one of the best films ever. Um, I wonder if there's someone out there thinking of some sort of a, a counter strategy yeah. to Netflix. I don't know. It almost feels like each studio is going to have to pick their, for lack of a better term, sacrificial lamb and just be like, you're going to be the movie that we're going to put into this season and we're going to yeah. sacrifice your box office and you're going to be our Oscar play and we're going to push this one, which all like sort of yeah. happens anyway in terms of just like studios deciding which movie is going to be their, the one that they're put their support behind. But yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of calculus done in terms of like, you know, you can't pick something that's too lucrative because you're going to lose too much money on it, but still something big enough that you think Oscar voters will go for it. Here's- I mean, I never would have thought that The Way Back was going to be the last film that I saw in theaters in 2020, <laughs> but, <laughs> so, but that's the way that it seems to be going. Are there movies? And I, I guess I really don't know because I usually start my kind of Oscar watching around now, maybe a little earlier. Or not, I don't mean the movies. I don't really watch movies right. anymore. I'm just talking about the the horse race. <laughs> um, are there are there movies that you think have gotten pushed out of the season or are getting pushed out of the season that otherwise would have been front runners? Because I do feel oh. like these Netflix movies are the ones that had buzz anyway. Right? Yes, I agree. Right. I mean, that's a hard question. If only because this is the time of the year where your Venice lineup and your Toronto lineup yeah, are starting to fill up. And that's how you can tell. That's all of a sudden your starting gun in terms of just like, also we didn't have a Cannes film festival. So there would have been maybe one thing. That's how we knew that once upon a time in Hollywood was going to be a thing. So like all these little indicators it was getting taken was away. Too, right? uh, yes. 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 Right. They won the Palm door. Yeah. Oh yeah. Doy. Jeez. Um, <laughs> And so all of these, like, these are our, like, little indicators, and absent those, you're really sort of kind of seeing that, like, oh, you're, you know, there's so much that we don't know without all these things that help us, you know, give us a little clue. So, um, we are doing a, con- I don't want to say a controversial film, but certainly a divisive film next week, uh, so we wanted to, to hear your thoughts on this. Next week, we're doing Audition with yes. uh, Brianna, Brianna Ziegler has come on to, to talk about that with us. Um, you know, it was, I don't even really know how to explain this. Kenny and I both, I saw it in 99 uh, and it was certainly a movie that stayed with me back then. Uh, rewatching it now. I mean, I think Kenny and I both agree, like it's a stone cold masterpiece, um, that that it is just a, a, a shockingly amazing movie. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on addition and Takeshi Miike? And, and I know you don't know. I mean, I don't know all of his movies, made over a hundred movies, but what are your thoughts on his work? Um, I really love horror movies, but in many ways I can be a real big scaredy cat about him. So I haven't seen a lot of Miike movies. I've seen, I saw audition for the first time only a few years ago. Obviously it's like legend had obviously built up by then. Yeah. I really liked it and I liked it almost as much for the not notorious parts of it. Like obviously the parts that like have become (laughs) 
sort of these urban legends unto themselves. The, the, you know, I don't, I don't want to go too into specifics and ruin, you, you know, your episode. No, like you can talk about whatever the you man, want, yeah. the guy in the sack and the, and the, you know, the vomiting into the dish and all that sort of stuff and the pins <laughs> and the whatever, all that stuff lives up to the hype. But yeah. like the stuff that I also thought was so impressive was the stuff leading up to it. The stuff with, you know, the sort of uh, socio-cultural stuff where it's like, oh, this is what is, you know, he's not like, he's not getting what he deserves, I suppose, because like, you don't really deserve that. But like, this is, you know, (laughs) these are the interpersonal interactions with people that sort of like, you never know, you never know who you're dealing with. And, you know, well, I think that, you know, the thing that, that Kenny and I, I think we're both pretty floored by is, um, first of all, how, how much richer and complex the film has gotten. I mean, I know, I mean, I, I watched it back in 99, but like I saw it through a lens of 99. The movie is only more and more powerful with each year that passes as mm. gender dynamics change, as, yep. as dating changes, the way we meet people, all these sort of things has made this film so much more prescient and so much richer for it. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's a great episode. Brianna was great. And, yeah, I mean, Kenny and I just uh, became big Takeshi Mikkei fans, essentially. And, and we almost never say this, but watch the film. Like, yeah, watch the watch the film before the podcast. Uh, you do not want to listen to the podcast without watching the film first. I would say the first time I ever really became super aware of Audition beyond just like knowing that it was this movie that people really liked. Uh, Bravo actually had done this special on. 100 scariest movies of all time. 100 scariest movie moments of all time. And really, it was really, really good. And it, like, really brought together, like, all all the great horror masters are doing Talking Heads for this. So, like, Romero's in there and Wes Craven's there and um, Guillermo del Toro, along with your regular sort of just, like, you know, teen horror stars and whoever, like, Mm -hmm. they could get. But... Griffin really Damon. interesting cross section of people talking really intelligently and passionately about horror movies that they like. And I remember the moment, the one, the little pod they had for audition, Eli Roth is talking, who is like, for all his, you know, faults or whatever, is incredibly passionate and excited talking about yeah. horror movies. And he's enthusing about audition, but he does make this comment about like, oh, it's your classic like nightmare, you know, psycho girlfriend, bad date scenario or whatever, right? And it's just like seeing the movie. And then thinking about that, I'm like, God, that's so reductive. In terms so of, reductive. Of just like the appeal I mean, I would, of that movie. I would expect nothing less from Eli Roth, of quite course. frankly. <laughs> right, right. But, but, yeah. but I, yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's also, I hate to say this too. I mean, I, I hate to, I don't mean to shit on Eli Roth, but like, that's the obvious choice for Eli Roth. The, 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 yes. the, the birth, the guy who created fucking torture porn. Yeah, of right. course he's the guy who likes he, audition. Eli right. Roth has that Todd Phillips thing where, <laughs> I really want to look for the good in their movies. Yeah. Like Eli Roth, maybe even more so than Todd Phillips, but like everything, everything that I thought was good about the Joker got just undercut by everything Todd Phillips said in the media about him. Like, Oh wait, so you you didn't intend what I think you intended. Right. Right. That's Tom. Right. Right. 
what I saw. Really interesting. I thought it was subversive. God damn it. Yeah. You really really were. You really were like lauding this this serial killing villain and just saying it actually is a good way to uprise him. No. Yeah. Yeah, So wait, wait. You saw Taxi Driver and thought it was like a a cool way to like go and and search people and kill them? Oh, no. It's true. I mean, Eli Eli Roth has a very similar thing. No, because like, you know, when you watch Audition and you kind of like go down the torture hole, torture porn rabbit hole a little bit, you do start to, it is horror. Like we talked a lot about this with Brianna. Like, horror almost never is what it seems to be right, right. it almost right. never is like let's just show people getting their tongues cut out because it's cool to let pe- watch people getting their tongues cut out there's right. always almost something behind it and the fear when you hear eli roth have a quote about quote like that is oh no mate maybe he just actually wrote hostile because yeah. he really yeah. wants to see girls yeah. get no that same that same bravo special Wes craven is talking about last house on the left as a movie he made in reaction to the vietnam war as like an anti-war film and like that's what you want like that's what you want to have your horror director have Mm -hmm. that sort of like presence of mind and knowledge and he's bringing to it more than just you know murdering and killing on a screen and whenever you hear romero speak like yeah, your all of your feelings about Night of the Living Dead that you you thought were there, you're like, oh, they were. Oh, yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Totally. So I'm not just like a, I'm not just like a bloodthirsty animal. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I can feel all slightly right. better about myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's, <laughs> well, that's that's upsetting about Eli Roth. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Joe, for coming on. We've oh really my god, thank you for having me. This was super <laughs> awesome. I'm so happy uh, to we meet absolutely- you. I'm so yeah, happy same to here. talk about Survivor. Uh, um, yeah. Do you- do you, have, do you have a favorite Survivor yeah. ever? Uh, person or season? Because I could go. Well, both. give me, give me either. Oh, my favorite person ever on Survivor is Suri. She's like absolutely, okay. absolutely love, my favorite. I love Suri too. My- Would have loved to have seen her win once, and obviously that didn't happen. My favorite okay. season is Heroes versus Villains because, uh, Parvati and Sandra making it to the end on that one is. Super, super fun and impressive. On um, like the two sides of the coin, where like one is the strategic, and one is just like all personality and wiliness, and oh, so cool. I recently got a friend a uh, Sandra cameo because she's the queen. I, I heard her Sandra. cameos are very fun. Yeah. She's awesome. She goes. Yeah, Parvati, I love too. Um, so many friends of mine are getting into Survivor over quarantine, which is heartening and and exciting i will say it's the best sh- it's the best show of all time and unfortunately it was 2000 or else we would do an episode on it yeah um, yeah it launched in 2000 but we would have yep. to do i don't know john I'm, I'm putting you on the spot but uh there is an episode in who wants to be a millionaire where you can talk about all this stuff because oh yeah like millionaire is the 99 uh reality game show whatever like Crazy for sure. And if you, you know, just to get into the Entertainment Weekly thing, I distinctly remember an Entertainment Weekly article about Millionaire and about what's next because it was everything. And they yeah. talked about greed and they talked about the weakest link and they talked about this crazy idea CBS had called Survivor. So yeah. we can turn that into a Survivor pod if you want to come on. I, I would am love that. Willing and eager to do that for sure. Yeah. Awesome. That would be amazing. We could just, yeah, put a whole reality television uh, umbrella on. I'm into it. I'm super into it. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Joe, it was this was a thrill. We're so glad that you came on. Thank you Thanks so you much for, for talking about this 
bizarre, interesting, bizarre. complicated movie. <laughs> um, but, I, but we both really appreciate it, and uh, we can't wait to have you back. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.